This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ni hao. Ni hao. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know, like, I was on Skype, and there was, like, that's the usual way. And oh, nobody yeah. was calling me, and I was like, obviously, Benjamin forgot me. No. I think about you all the time. I have a little shrine over there. No, I mean, that's appropriate. Well, it's more of a uh, scratch post for the cats, but it's got James' essence on it. Oh, well, I see you in a little spray bottle, yeah. <laughs> have you guys spoken face-to-face or in person? Never. No. Just tippy typies. Yeah, so oh, I've wow. always been just behind the scenes. Mm. Well, technically, for the recording, you'll be behind the scenes that's, still. But that's also fine. At least yeah. James can read your facial gestures while we. You guys can't see because my camera is in the wrong angle, but I'm wearing a my awesome Boston shirt that says "Wicked Smart" that I got in Boston. <laughs> Wicked Smart. I'm going to put the Wicked Smart shirt and do some talks sometime soon. I haven't figured out where. I'll wear it, though, on stage with a jacket over it. It'll be hilarious. What? Uh, why were you in Boston? For a talk. Wicked Smart. Oh, cool. Did yeah. you help? You and Mark Wahlberg did some uh, No, um, it was for uh, private school moms. I get around. You do. I do. I just got and back this... from the UK. I'm freaking exhausted. It's oh, really? UK? Yeah. Is well, that I a mean, it's been about or... a week. Um, I've actually been to Texas since and home for a little bit. Anything new on the horizon? Got a book coming out. Oh, another one. What's this I'm one about? The sixth education. Well, Paulo Freire specifically. All these people are like, do you talk about colleges of education? Do you talk about this? Do you talk about that? And I'm like, no. Talk about Paulo Freire. Deal with it. Is that the brother the of Guy Fieri? Uh, the it's Flavor not. Town Man? Oh, okay. Definitely not. There's no flavor in this guy. He doesn't get spicy or salty? Um, I mean, he's a Marxist, but he's like this like weird religious Marxist. It's like really a weird guy. Like what's that? Uh, what's that Catholicism? That branch of Catholic liberation theology? Yeah, liberation theology. That's yeah. He was in. Oh, that. okay. Okay. Yeah. So he was a liberation theologian, but then he studied Marx straight up and um, came up with a theory of education that is a disaster. Hmm. But it's so, being implemented everywhere. Every Hardcore. everywhere since like ninety two or three. It's basically been the main thing coming out of colleges of ed. Which is a long time to be losing. The question always arises: Why? Why that? Why is it so infectious? Top down? Is it? Is it just like addictive to think this way? Or Um, no? In this case, it was actually bottom up uh, activism to get it into the colleges of ed. Um, The colleges of ed. uh, I mean, there's a guy, (laughs) like literally a man with a name and an address named Henry Giroux which is, I think we've talked about him before, G-I-R-O-U-X. 
and uh, he went around in the eighties after like, so he, he read that he read Frary. He was like having a bad day in the seventies at his teaching high school in Barrington, Rhode Island. And I mean, really he was, he was like super depressed cause he was trying to do like feeling circles and shit. And his principal was like, no, you can't do this. Like just teach kids, just teach them stuff. And he's like trying to do all this like radical subversive crap in his classroom. And he kept getting shut down. So he's having a bad day. And he said he was like super frustrated. I don't know if he was about to quit teaching and then he went home super frustrated from work one day at this school in rhode island and read the pedagogy of the oppressed in one night and he had literally like a religious conversion didn't sleep went to school manic the next day he now had the language of transformation to change the entire school and he kind of got bounced off you know reality a little bit and so he set up what he called his his praxis which was to go around and get critical theorists tenured as professors in colleges of education. And by like 1985 or so, he managed to get a hundred of them in different colleges of ed. And so that built up this huge like reservoir of people who, when Paulo Freire published his next book with in, in 85 with Giroux's forward, they were like, yes. And then, you know, this guy, Isaac Gottesman, who was a is a Marxist educator or was, I think he's dead. I don't know. Um, but he because uh, I was at a thing in Iowa recently and one of his, his one of his students who's a doctorate in her own right now was really mad at me and like yelled at me and stuff. And she referred to him in the past tense. So I'm assuming he might be dead. But he wrote a book in 2016 or thereabouts called The Critical Turn in Education that is like a history book of how education transformed. And he lays basically all of the credit for this transformation on Giroux and then says that Paulo Freire's influence by 1992 was where it remains today. And his, his word that he gives for that is everywhere. And so we can assume by 92 that his influence was overwhelming. Hmm. Um, and that was TikTok 30 years ago. Is this some... Um, uh... Sorry, I just forgot the question. My brain just went blank. Sorry. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a very Benjamin kind of moment. Um, it's just, oh, was there a uh, similar person? Oh, okay. Uh, Freire, is he like number two citated, citations? Three. Number, number three. three. Okay, so there's yeah, Foucault, Foucault was number one. Jordan Peterson, two and is. then... Is it Jordan Peterson? No, I don't know. Jordan Peterson's probably up there. Um, He's pretty high. Yeah. But number number one is Michel Foucault, and number three is Paulo Freire. Uh, I don't know who number two is offhand. And I actually tried to find that page again, and I, I don't remember where I found it. Um, it went viral like two years ago, but I don't remember where it was. Yeah. Um, I think it was just Google Scholar citation counts, too, which is sort of bogus. Yeah. But um, So was Foucault also like championed by a specific person or was his ideas just particularly adapted Judith to being um, Butler? Yeah. The, the structural feminists are the ones who really launched Michel Foucault into the, to the limelight feminists found Foucault's angle of deconstruction. Also Derrida's angle of deconstruction, extraordinarily useful to their project of throwing out gender roles and gender norms and gender expectations. And that's why queer theory is really rooted off of this weird 
mating of sex positive feminism and post-structuralist thought of Foucault and Derrida, which if you actually read critics of Butler, for example, um, who were say students of Derrida directly, they were like, Butler just made it up. Like she read it completely wrong and just made up stuff to her own purposes. Um, so in that regard, uh, I think it was the feminists, the sex positive feminists coming out of the latter half of the 1980s that launched Michel Foucault into prominence. And so you, uh, you could probably see that tracing. So in the humanities, there's these feminist departments and the feminist department set up women's studies and then women's studies eventually becomes gender studies. And for whatever reason, it kind of captures the imagination of humanities departments. And that's how it uh, spreads. You think? Yeah, for probably a variety of reasons. One is that it lets them sound scientific when they're not. Oh, I mean, I think that's a big part of it. They use big words that everything's an ality. Everything seems yeah. to have very precise definitions. They yeah. get to pretend that they're actually philosophers. They get to pretend that they're actually scientists studying the human condition in a completely different paradigm. It also taps right into their whole like, I mean, we called it grievance studies back in the day because it taps right into their grievance boner. Um if you don't want to take responsibility for being a moron, these theories are perfect for you. They are literally perfect for you. Oh, yeah. You can't succeed in physics. It's not because you suck balls at math. It's because it's patriarchal. Boo-hoo. Yeah. You can't do, you can't, you know, do, do a Fourier expansion of something, so you're never going to get a degree in engineering or math. Well, it's probably because the department is patriarchal and racist. Like, boo-hoo. It's such bullcrap. Um, hmm. but yeah, uh, it was, I mean, there was a book written in, I think in the fifties by CP snow called the two cultures, um, that talked about this rift between the sciences and the humanities. And you can almost put it in like a star Wars kind of thing. It's like, this is, we're in the middle of empire strikes back. It's the humanities are striking back. You know, they've been dethroned by, by the, the scientific rebels in the, hmm. the, positivist movement of the early 1920s or 30s i should say and then now they've they've basically decided to colonize the sciences and the sciences are like yes mommy may i have another and mm. um now we're here hmm. so it rather than revenge of the nerds it's revenge of the midwits kind of i mean more or less it's re it's revenge of the pompous midwits in particular not all midwits are pompous but there is a, a, you know, a problem with pomposity. I just saw somebody on Twitter like five minutes ago and was like, you can be wrong or you can be arrogant, but you can't be arrogant and wrong. And I'm like, the fuck are you talking about? Like, that's literally the entire brand of Twitter is being arrogant and wrong at the same time. <laughs> it's like arrogance and wrongness correlate like unbelievably. What are you talking about? Um, it's, like, it's like the Dunning-Kruger party bus on there. That's, that's literally what it is. Um, Dunning and Kruger set up like a, they put they put some beats, they put some neon lights in the back of a, mm -hmm. of a, a little mini school bus. And they're driving uh, losers around from bar to bar where they tell everybody how much smarter they are than everybody else. Hmm. And everything that's happening is just bizarre. It's so strange. How could it be? It's like the media's ginning up narratives. <laughs> oh, fuck. There's not enough liquor on the planet to deal with these very smart people. Benjamin Gator. Speaking of 
Very smart people. Gator, how would you like to kick kick in, kick off? I want well, to see I mean, where I, you guys I've are Obviously, I'm not as uh, deep into the history of these uh, these movements as, as James is. He's he's got the nuance down. He knows the actors. He knows the days. You know that, that certain events occurred. You know, I, I have I have a different sort of aerial view of those those dynamics. So I I sort of only view them from uh, from generic constructs. I don't always have the the minutia down. So you know, I can comment on how certain dynamics might play out without having to describe them in the same terms. But you know, that I don't have anything to specifically comment on at the moment with regards to that. Well, but what should we? analyze or what have you guys both what are you guys both kind of interested in like things that are we could talk just cheaply gossipy about what's happening on twitter right now or just we can tackle some narratives uh on a political level or uh you know kind of more behind the scenes i think we're both into hooters hooters oh yeah okay so is hooters grooming no now owls do not have that sort of proclivity they don't they don't really pay attention to human human activity that much they prefer to stay in the trees so i don't think that they're grooming anybody yeah they're, they're pretty they might be preening they might be preening everyone's <laughs> preening. but not not grooming no yeah okay. yeah. yeah yeah no i mean i think that like you know the general dynamics of what's going on it, so we could say the you know general gossip on twitter but what's happening with twitter is actually kind of fascinating right now yeah. Um, that's I can a big definitely topic. discuss a lot of that. Yeah. So if, yeah. if we have, you know, even though, even though Twitter does sometimes seem insidery and, and too online, there is a lot going on that does, is not, you know, relegated to that domain. So yeah, sure. If we want to head on that. Well, my, uh, one of my, uh, kind of shit takes about it is that we're seeing kind of, uh, a monarchical takeover of an oligarchical structure in real time, right? We have like one supreme leader taking control of this huge mechanism that right. was controlled by the oligarchy. And so Elon Musk is using these Twitter polls in order to like use democracy to affect his will, basically. I, I don't, you know, I wouldn't go that far with what he's yeah. doing. There's a lot of showmanship in Elon Musk. So, so face value, Elon is not always the right, the right take. There's occasions where face value, Elon's the right take probably, but not all the time, you know, and he probably made that decision to allow Trump back on, but did the show of, of the, the poll just for hype, right? Like he, he's doing, he did a slow rollout of these returning accounts. You know, some of the ones that had the most, uh, most push behind them, the ones that the, the bannings or the lockouts that were deemed most unfair from abroad broad uh, perspective so he did those to hype up sort of this this narrative because he was doing he did the um freedom fridays right after the narrative was that twitter was about to die that he had just fired the last of the remaining crew that could actually man the ship and it was about to be turned off at midnight or something like that that was the general gist of what it was so if you pivot off of twitter is dead to twitter is more alive than it ever has been that's a nice nice little win for you um you know, in the dialogue, the cultural dialogue. So that, you know, that you can easily just say was more showmanship than than taking the poll to direct democracy. I mean, he could have controlled levers at all times. There's still plenty of bot problems on there. He, who knows how many that, you know, are owned internally by by Elon. He has, he has many friends who probably own bot farms to some degree. I mean, it's just, those are games that are played all the time. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that the, the, the poll outcomes could be, you know, massaged if he needs them to be 
But in the very least, it's refreshing to see one person take control of Twitter, which we don't know how far it's going to go with maintaining relevance. Maybe he'll exhaust it all. But for the time being... For me, it's, a, it's refreshing because it's a break from the monotony that existed. It, it, it still is yet to be seen whether or not it's, it's a true sea change in, in the direction of, of, you know, let's say the cultural dialogue. It, for the short, you know, the for, short term might be very beneficial to those who had recently had their asses pounded for the, the last five years. Just, you know, the, the smallest infractions getting them permanently suspended. No infractions to speak of getting them permanently suspended. Um, the shenanigans that Twitter engaged in in the 2020 election, you know, those those might legitimately stop for a while. Now, to, it's, it remains to be seen what other types of things could occur that are negative that, you know, that Twitter can engage in. Perhaps the business model that's required to keep Twitter afloat is ultimately destructive of the, the conversation we've all been trying to have in that framework. You know, maybe maybe it winds up becoming a TikTok clone or, or just becomes, you know, he, he keeps using uh, WeChat as an example, I believe. Um, What's for, WeChat? I don't know that. App. James... Uh, WeChat's to... like, I mean, it started kind of, as far as I understand, it started as a WhatsApp clone in China. Uh, it is like the master app in China. If you want to, I mean, you can literally do all of your commerce through WeChat in China. A lot of places, the last time I went to China, which was in 2019, so I'm sure it's worse. Um, the only way you could pay was either through a Bank of China QR code on, on your Bank of China app or the WeChat. WeChat account that you had that was linked probably directly to your Bank of China account. So WeChat is kind of this, it's like social media, but it's like WhatsApp. And I've only barely ever seen it. I've never used it personally, um, but I've been to China and saw people, you know, who thrive based on it. But it's a, it's, it's, I don't know, it almost feels a little telegrammy from what I've, I've looked at, but it's a social media communications app that's kind of your one-stop shop and it more it or less payment rules. systems. It includes yeah, you know, money, the, it, everything. It's your personal ID in many cases, you know, it identifies you uniquely tying you to your phone. And while of course you can take those routes to be as, as protective of the individual and their autonomy as possible, you almost can build it as a Trojan horse for someone else to take over and then just flip against you. And as you can see, like the, reporters and, and news media is having a very difficult time weaning themselves off of Twitter, even though they really don't like Musk. The the inertia <laughs> that is built into them using Twitter day in and day out is there. And so if you were to build, let's say, a Trojan horse, even though you weren't intending for you know to hide an army inside of the, the insides, you build that, it's now built. And then if, if the inertia is still there, people might find it hard to wean themselves off because it might be just convenient. It might be the easiest way for them to pay for gas. It might be the easiest way for them to you know, transfer money. So now the, because it creates so many conveniences into their day-to-day -day lives, whatever it is taking away probably only comes infrequently. The, the rights or privileges they are relinquishing to that sort of construct it only comes by in fleeting moments in which case you can just shrug them off and go eh whatever and and you're already locked into it so that would be a concern when building something like that a platform like that is that he's calling x which is intended to do all of these things some of the things that that make it a little less scary is is him uh, saying that he's going to add in 
signal-like, uh, which is a chat application, a signal-like encryption, which means that no third parties, even Twitter itself, would be able to see what people are DMing each other. Of course, that opens him up to an avenue of attack when it comes to people wanting to claim that people are using Twitter for nefarious ends, because now if everything's encrypted, you can't see what's being transmitted, which means nefarious things can be transmitted. Uh, you, we can see the argumentation like when, with things where it comes to Bitcoin. You know, the FBI will say Bitcoin is is used by criminals. It's it's a huge you know it's a huge uh, tool for criminals, and they never really mention that you know regular dollars were used by criminals throughout time. You know, <laughs> throughout all of history. So so using a particular platform doesn't mean that the platform itself is is negative. So the adding encryption to things like DMs where the third party Twitter can't see it is a positive, but it'll also be used against him rhetorically to try to to try to demonize it. So it's still yet to be seen how things pan out. I would say yeah. it is a, a refreshing from breaking the monotony though, because that was getting old. That was getting really old. Could you just describe this monotony from your sure. point of view? Sure. Um, there was basically Twitter, the media and and the government were what was was just a complete incestuous relationship. It, there was just there was no there were no barriers important enough to describe that existed between you know uh, activists inside of Twitter who either were in the middle middle realms or even up high in in the 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 vice you know the vice presidents of different uh, uh, and directors of different departments to to um, you know. Uh, revolving doors of of mm -hmm. members of interns for political parties so dnc dnc members intern groups you know people who who held positions with different candidates etc would get you know just because of the regular buddy system you know would, would get nice praise letters of recommendations written and then they get these high positions inside of inside of twitter and in, in, in facebook has has similar issues there's there's main Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now main operatives who are big in the DNC who now have high positions in deciding what content is is allowed on on Facebook. In fact, one of the main decision makers at Facebook was a, is a high member of a former high member of, of the DNC who sort of was involved in deciding what, how Facebook treated the Hunter Biden laptop story. So so you have the, that particular incestuous revolving door and you also then have have the government itself where at any given point in time, the government can allow certain things to happen by not by not enforcing rules and then can then control what the the entity does by saying they are no longer going to ignore enforcing rules and then just you know basically threaten them to say we're going to start enforcing these rules that exist if you don't comply the way that we want you to suppress particular types of information, etc. Um, last time I was on here with you, I was bringing up the example of Parler, where they the, there was a you know a collusive effort to you know get parlor kicked off the app stores and then the other the, the other networks and at the time i had said they would never do that to twitter and the caveat on that was that while it was owned by the old regime because of that revolving door incestuous network there was almost no need they had the control if, if they wanted for example uh, james suspended 
they just had to come up with a new a new rule that he was already breaking for him to become suspended and that's basically how it happened you know they the some and some activist goes to their media context the media context push an article the people inside of twitter read the article they go oh god we got to do something about this and then they do it there's there's so many ways that that the the incestuous relationship was just building a complete stranglehold on anything that could be said that it, it that was the monotony it was you you knew that it was happening everyone could see that it was happening but you couldn't do much about it hmm. and so now there's at least a little bit of that break yeah it's funny because as what, what i mean just scrolling through twitter this morning i saw all these people that were like wouldn't you say that the behavior on twitter has just gotten really bad and it's like you can tell they're really upset that things the different things are being said and people aren't being punished um we're, we're really the only difference. I mean, I've been kind of a connoisseur of Twitter behavior for a number of years. And the only no, noticeable difference that I see on Twitter right now, except for the break in monotony, is that the left is on a like a tantrum like I haven't seen in a very long time. I mean, I predicted way back when Musk first started joking around that he was thinking about buying Twitter. I immediately said, well, they're just going to make this place a toxic dump and try to drive advertisers off and try to destroy it from within to make it where nobody wants to be here. Um, and I don't know that they're succeeding at that. They didn't but, even wait for that, though. They just tried to get the advertisers off. Yeah, they went immediately they and said they were doing it. <laughs> yeah. They're like, let's do the they, Tumblr. They to, are they are telegraphing Twitter. all of their moves. And the only downside to that is that people can see them telegraph all their moves and, and still claim that we're crazy for noticing that they're telegraphing all their moves. Even yeah, if you we could have told you the to moves in advance. Yeah, you get used to getting called crazy. Something you brought up, Gator, a minute ago when you were talking about WeChat and the possibility with Twitter of, of becoming this kind of like Trojan horse, demonic, one ring to rule them all tech platform is, in fact, the, what, I, what we should refer to maybe as a law of convenience. And that is the way that totalitarianism usually creeps. And I think that's how it got so deeply entrenched in China. It, it, having experience, being able to just have kind of one central app that basically controls your whole life it's super convenient it's super easy you like all you have to do anywhere you go is flash your phone you don't have to carry a wallet you don't have to carry cards you don't have to carry id you don't have to have credit cards you don't have to get shit out of your to pay for stuff you don't have to count cash you don't have to keep up with anything you just flash your phone you push the button open the thing qr code it scans it everything's taken yeah, care from of. from a convenience standpoint i haven't used cash in many years you know, I, I've, I don't have physical dollars on me at, in large numbers at any point in time. I don't carry cash around on me. I just use my my regular check card. That's, yeah, that's really a convenience. Rare. That's a convenience. Well, and, and the and, thing is, 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 people will always, I mean, the power of convenience is, is, mm -hmm. is not to be trifled with, is kind of the point I'm raising. No, right. Absolutely. And and if we've seen, you know, uh, going back to uh, almost last year, the, the trucker protests, the strangle strangling people from the from the banking system is is now a play that is routinely going going at it. You know, and, and we see it happening simply online early We where we, we see that uh, MasterCard, in, I believe, is one of the main people, the main uh, processors who decides to actually unperson entire individuals from their network saying that we are not you know any any business that does business with mastercard is not permitted to do business with you or will sever ties with those businesses and i don't know 
but I would not be surprised to find out that some of those moves are, you know, suggested at MasterCard and MasterCard itself does not care. It just doesn't want any of the the trouble from not complying with whoever wanted a particular mm. actor kicked off. I don't I don't I can't imagine that MasterCard themselves actually care as a business entity, but but the motion to actually, you know, target specific individuals and remove them economically from that sort of processing. Because if you cut off someone's cards like that, you cut them off from a lot of things. There's 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 a lot of places that that don't even want to take cash anymore because it's just too much of a hassle. It opens them up to robberies, you know, pretended, you know, attempted robberies where there's actually cash to take. If it's all digital, what's the robber going to take other than your inventory? You know, there's there's a lot of yeah. things that that push that momentum sort of sort of through. But uh, it, that's a direct route. The government is going to do that every single way. Think think of um, what's uh, what's the term uh, when you haven't broken any laws. They take the cash that you have on you because it's a large amount. I'm trying to think I, I, the term is on the tip of my tongue. Oh, I know uh, what you're talking about. I don't know the term for this, or maybe I do, but I'm not thinking of it. Yeah, it'll come to me and I'll, I'll bring it up. But it I can tell you the cashless is like having just come back from the UK, like virtually everywhere is cashless now. Like almost no establishments want to wrangle with cash unless it's like, you know, a guy selling cider or sausages or something on the street in a tent. Uh, they're almost all, you know, tap your card and go away. Cashless this, cashless that. Think about the convenience store that was uh, the ones that called the cops on uh, on George Floyd for the counterfeit twenty. I mean, they they would have an easy excuse to never want to deal with <laughs> with, with money again, right? With, yeah, with sure. cash, they they would want to. Not that they could do that, but you know, they don't might not be able to transition away from that given their their local clientele. But you know, they would have an incentive to do it. The the convenience of moving off those things and away from cash is is huge, and the 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 cash becomes blocked for things that um, for for almost no reason. There's a there's a longstanding rule with bank deposits, where if you deposit $10,000 or more, you have to fill out a bunch of paperwork to to go over why you're depositing $10,000. So of course, obviously, $9,999 would become the next logical thing to do. And you can actually then be cited for breaking the law on that. They call it structuring your deposits to avoid the law that they they put in. So it's any sort of behavior that you adjust to, to accommodate the law, they consider a violation of the law because you're attempting to accommodate and quote get around you're finding loopholes nine nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars becomes a loophole and so the the trend towards furthering the convenience aspect in order to control what you are doing is is always an in, sort of encroachment that's going to be done whether it is specifically on the legal side or just on the regular system-wide side of rule enforcement yeah i feel like this is a place where um where lawmakers, although that's its own stew of, of uselessness, are just so far behind. And in a lot of ways, one of the reasons that we are in this kind of like really weird, tyrannical moment that we're, we're slogging through is because the technology has moved so much faster than the capacity for lawmakers to get their head around the implications of the technology. Um, and when I talk to lawmakers, which I actually end up doing frequently now, they're just kind of so, I mean, it's almost like they're dealing with like 1996 technology and trying to figure out how to legislate 
um, in order to prevent these kinds of abuses. Because these things, the, there, there's a reason to want this convenience. Then there's what we might call, or what I do call the law of convenience, which is that convenience always wins. And so people will gravitate toward convenience. They'll just do it voluntarily. And so this becomes a gigantic opportunity for tyrants who can figure out schemes by which they can make things very convenient that people would want, and then put a lot of control inside of the very convenient thing. For example, um, you know, it's it's impossible if you're awake to what's going on in the world right now to support a central bank digital currency. But when you realize how convenient it would be and how very, very easy they could make your life from a day-to-day perspective work, if we all were on this one, you know, huge currency and it's all digital and everything's straightforward, yada, yada, people will gravitate to this. There's all kinds of convenient, useful, actually it, cool stuff. It'll also be sold to you as more secure. And that, and it might even be at the beginning more secure right. than the, the options you're currently using. Like about a month ago, I found out for the first time I was a victim of identity fraud. Now, luckily it wasn't the most extravagant identity fraud I just found on my credit report that someone had opened a credit card under my name. But luckily, they sent it to my address, so I got the credit card. So there was no, there was no ability for them to actually use it yet, and so I canceled it immediately. So luckily, I was able to avoid that. But now, if you if you sell to me this digital currency, talking about enhanced identity fraud protections, now I don't have to fear this situation where someone has taken out a loan and maybe I don't check my credit report and I don't see it. And now, if I see it, maybe it's been a year and it's and now there's you know nothing but legal hassle that I have to go through. That would be a huge convenience for me if you sell it to me with that. That sort yeah. of thing. And so that's what one civil asset forfeiture is the word there, that I was looking there, for. That is it. That that's is it. that's where that's where so if let's say that you are driving in a car and you have you have fifteen thousand dollars in cash on you for whatever personal reason you have it. If you get stopped, let's say for speeding, and the cops look in your trunk and they see the money, they can confiscate that money even though you've committed no crime. And you it many times you don't get that back. So if you look up news on civil asset forfeiture, you'll find plenty of examples where people have not committed a crime but they can't get their cash back. And that's like a that's a increasing the convenience of not having cash by by making cash sort of a, a penalized having cash a penalized crime even though there's no crime on the books for it. Those are one of the things that that happen all over the place. Civil yeah. asset Spe- forfeiture. Speaking of identity, here's an idea that I was thinking of because uh, I've been studying this gender topic and the transgender topic and the and that kind of goes into the grooming topic. And there's this generation, um, probably a couple generations by now, of kids who go on the internet and are manipulated by older men, usually, into sexual acts. And they're literally one-on-one groomed, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's just a lot of kids on the internet that there's no oversight for that and there's no guardrails for that. So if every kid had a digital identity, where, wherever they logged in, then the internet itself could could keep the kids kind of safe, keep the kids away from the adults. Mm-hmm. I, I think they gate, could propose that. I don't know how, obviously, how long term, how well that would fix a problem. But yeah, that is something that could be proposed where, you know, we can we can we certify that these people are, you know, these IDs are harder to steal. You know, it's almost impossible to steal them or fake them or forge them or whatever it would be definitely a selling point. Or, or have private contact, like like having private contact with thirteen year olds. It's just it's yeah. just a groomer's paradise on the internet, and a digital ID would be one way of potentially safeguarding kids. I, I it don't seems know like that exactly would be one way to sell. that would that would be that that would be specifically proposed to prevent that. But I could imagine 
along those lines, whether that was specifically one of them or not. I can imagine, you know, safety guards like that with when it comes to identity, because you would not you would not be permitted to engage in certain transactions without having this ID be what is is pushed. So if it is a it is a currency by, you know, the, the central, you know, the, the Federal Reserve that is digital and it has your identity on it. And, you know, your account is is kept track of. So whatever bank you are in, it's always tracked with the same customer number, like almost like a social security ID. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those types of protections uh, could could be used to promise particular types of safety, whether or not it would be your, your children online or not. I don't know. But you know that would be an angle if if they could do it to sell that type of. I mean that's yeah, how they, they sold. That's how they sold uh, back in the '90s. Bill Clinton sold the 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 television chip cards where they would actually turn off the program with your parental controls if uh, if the content was rated particular a particular thing. It was the V chip, I believe it was called. Hmm. I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah you know that, the the um, rated TVMA on the side of programs that started in the 90s there was no rating system like the mpaa or or anything uh where there were you know movies would have this this weird rating uh nc17 which was different than r and and it was it was a death knell to a movie if it got the nc17 so they always tried to get the r over the nc17 because it would be harder to market and so the television didn't have this so children could just similar to the internet be able to watch whatever was on TV, whether it was midday Jerry Springer, you know, that's not late night stuff where they're supposed to be in bed that's middle of the day. Um, or, or, or you know, late night programming where it was TVMA, you know, uh, murder uh, topics, things, rape topics, things like that, where you wouldn't necessarily want it. Uh, Bill Clinton had a push to put in this V chip, which allowed basically mandatory for televisions, newer televisions, to have this chip and parental settings, where you couldn't watch the program unless you put like in a four-digit PIN code. Hmm. If you put turn the settings on, I don't think most people turned them on, but <laughs> it was pushed in there. So, I mean, this is ultimately where we are are going to be butting up against, I think, for the next 10 years politically and in policy is that there are going to be these great arguments and great attraction to technologies that are currently geared to be able to ensnare and 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 maybe even enslave people. Um, central bank digital currency, you know, being equipped with a social credit score, turning your money into coupons or vouchers or however you want to phrase it, where they can, you know, they even say openly, well, we could program your currency. We can decide what you can buy, how much of what you can buy, when you can buy it, under what conditions you can buy it. You might have $10,000 in your account at the moment, but we're only going to allow you to spend $130 on meat and that will yeah. renew itself, you know, in six months. That would be the something. downstream consequences of it. That wouldn't be the proposal, though. Correct. That, <laughs> that's the thing. And it's a, this is this is how they're going to talk about all of these things about security, like your finances. You're possibly, you know, if you want to enter into a one-on-one encrypted chat through Twitter's new Trojan horse vehicle or whatever it is, then your digital ID gets checked. And if you're 26, you're not talking to a 13-year-old. Um, without some kind of a, I mean, there's, there's, there are things that could be sold as the selling points, just like there are these things with like 
the metaverse where they're selling, you know, oh, well, you can, why learn history from a book when you can put on your goggles and go to ancient Rome and listen to Marcus Aurelius, but you're not going to be listening to Marcus Aurelius. You're going to be listening to some Facebook coders idea of Marcus Aurelius who could be saying that Jesus is a transgender, like is in the, was it Trinity college Oxford just said that that's probably that's theologically sound. And so, I mean, so you're going to have that, but the, but they, those are selling points. Nevertheless, the selling, they don't the tell the you that points. they can put you in a communist prison yeah. in your, what, your one of the, headphones. Yeah, too. One of the selling points, and you can understand why the government might even it's, Self innocently like this type of feature is people people have issues getting their their tax returns their money refunded to them every year okay mm -hmm. and what the government has to do is it actually has to have people issue checks or try to do direct deposit which means that they then have to have an interface with every single bank that they're going to do direct deposit on this whole this whole idea of a digital currency would sort of get around that. You have an account. This digital currency can be placed with your name on it. All these banks can access this particular account that has your name on it, just the same as we've already had social security numbers, you know, all our lives. Okay. They'll be able to say, hey, we, you've already done this your whole life. There's almost no reason that you can think of to object to doing this if you accept social security numbers. Okay, so now we have this, this, this digital currency attached here. All the banks can just look at your account here through the federal government and it's safe and secure because of the digital uh, security that we have in, in baked into it. So now returns don't require this massive complex system. It's just, we will put the money into your account. We don't have to deal with direct deposit that way. You can imagine that as being a type of selling point to get su such a system in. And of course it would always be at the, at the beginning, an additional system, not, it wouldn't be offered as a replacement system. It'll always be, this isn't just an addition. It, you don't have to use it, I guess, if you don't want to, or it's always gonna be there whether you use it or not. And then, then after time, the logic would just sort of have the inertia of the convenience route to just keep it, keep replacing whatever you're doing with this until it's until it's everything you use. Yeah, I don't think people actually bringing up on that point. I don't think people realize how much of if we want to just kind of look at the regime or the global tyranny or whatever, how much of this is going to be choose your own ostracization, um, your own exclusion, your own exile. They're going to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, maybe let's just imagine that the, that something they do to try to get people in the metaverse or whatever, for whatever reason they want to, is that all retail stores put their cash register in the metaverse. So you can go there's Starbucks, you can go to McDonald's, you can go to, I guess, Adidas store at the mall. And if you, you pick out your product, you can get whatever you want, but if you want to pay for it, you have to slide in the metaverse and you pay on a digital cash register. It only exists there. Just as an example of something that they could very easily set up. And then they could say, well, you get to choose. You don't have to have a metaverse account. Nobody has to sign up for this. It's just that it's a lot more difficult for you to participate in all of the normal day-to-day features of life and so what i'm talking about there is therefore not just dealing with the convenience but amplifying the what's well, not really amplifying the convenience it's amplifying the convenience by creating a lot of onerous uh hoops you have to jump through if you don't want to participate in the thing that they're setting up to be the convenience trap and i hmm. I, I seriously see that this is kind of the way that they're very likely to um kind of to you know fish to fish and drag people i'm thinking of a bad metaphor i guess but to go out and like i'm thinking of throwing out the the, the line and reeling people in and getting them into the system uh is, is is basically to make it extremely onerous not to be in the system while almost like 
taunting or gaslighting you by saying, well, it's your choice. It's your choice if you don't want to. It's your choice if you don't want a vaccine passport. You just can't travel anywhere. It's your choice if you don't want to participate in, you know, electric cars or whatever, but you're only allowed to have, you know, 10 gallons of fuel per month or something like that. It's your choice. It's always your choice. You know, and I think that there's this kind of um, almost sadistic uh, approach to 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 creating real life being far more difficult than it needs to be uh, to try to pressure people into these systems. Because well, whether or not you can, uh, you would say that some of the, the things that we did at the early on the pandemic were worthwhile to at least attempt, you can easily, you can easily see how, how quickly certain types of expectations for society can be restructured during an emergency situation. So now how many people um, how many people never used uh, Uber Eats or Grubhub prior to this pandemic situation who are now always thinking to themselves, why would I go pick this up? I can actually just put it on the app and have someone deliver it to me from wherever I would like to order. And that's that's a innocent, nice feature, but it's a way of showing how behaviors could change radically in a pressure type of situation to where... It, actors could wait until the appropriate time to then push for a particular encroachment. There's a, there's a Rahm Emanuel who was in the Obama administration has a, has a saying attributed to him, which is never let a good crisis go to waste. So there are, whether, whether you believe that, that certain events are created from a conspiratorial angle, there are always going to be actors who are waiting for something to happen in order to make a particular move, in order to, to push for something that they want. Because again, mm-hmm. never let a good crisis go to waste is something people actively think. Right. So, so those types of changes where maybe, maybe everyone is sort of against this digital currency at first, there might be a time where that would change because because whatever you're currently doing in life is very difficult, but this this existing has made this now easy in this in this crisis situation. Right. There are significant reasons to believe, in fact, that Black Lives Matter, the eruption around George Floyd was, in fact, such an event that the crisis the, there were people actively activist groups actively pursuing which racial injustice can they blow up into a gigantic yep scandal that will capture the nation's attention and yeah. you saw it attempted with Ahmed Arbery you saw it attempted with a few of these other stories about the once dog every two park weeks, lady yeah the dog park lady that's right that was in fact the week before yeah um with the the didn't they both and every the time they got a little bit louder they got a little bit more radical they got a little bit and they're just and, waiting for it and waiting and then for finally you get the image of Derek Chauvin's knee on the shoulder blade inside of the neck of of George Floyd, all the context stripped out that he's actually dying of a democratic policy, which was an open border that allows fentanyl to come across the border in unchecked amounts. That's a fun little fact that nobody talks about that the Democrat border policy killed George Floyd. But um so much for your channel, Benjamin. Sorry. No, uh, no. I mean, if you look at this, uh, that that uh, nightclub shooting, and it turns out that the kid who did that shooting a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, they're like, this is all the group, the, the Republicans fault. Yeah, you, you were you set this up 
the motion because of all your there were like hating. 20 articles uh, like in yeah. mainstream well, things saying that Elon Musk let me back onto Twitter at the exact yeah. same time. I think I have Elon to, I Musk's have to reaction to the thing was to let oh, me no. back on Twitter. I, among... I think I have to take blame for the stochastic terrorism angle because the, as soon as I mentioned it on your show, <laughs> it became two events back to back. There was nothing but, you know, being called stochastic terrorism. So I think that's my fault for bringing that into social consciousness. So I apologize. Well, we well, should talk more about it because it's they'll, so... they'll never let a good podcast go to waste. I know these people. Anyway, so it, it turns out good, that... like eight syllable hyphenated word go to waste if they can find one. <laughs> stochastic terrorism. Why, that sounds like something you learned in college. Put it on the news so all the fucking morons will Even absolutely will buy into it. Try it out, yeah. But, but, but if you look at that kid, he's like, his dad's a drug addicted I porn star. Watched, and yeah, this is I, all was democratic on, um, policies. He was on uh, he was on intervention season six of intervention his father i, I watched Whoa. that episode after i saw that that was particularly interesting when was when was this and what is this show the the, the father the father uh, of the the club q shooter uh, his father they pushed out a video in the last week or so interviewing him and he was basically strung out on uh, probably meth because that was his drug of choice and he was actually on on reality tv at least twice um once on a courtroom show i don't think it was judge judy but it was one of those similar might have been divorce court or something like that and one of them was intervention which is a long like you know 23 season um show similar to let's say uh, my 600 pound life which is like a documentary on people who have drug addictions and they're they're they agree to do a, a documentary on the addiction, but at the end of the, the episode, their family has them at an intervention to try to convince them to go to rehab. Um, so the, he was actually on one of those. So I watched it after I saw he was on there because it's kind of it's kind of wicked to see someone who was on TV earlier and then their son is now famous for a horror, horrific act. It's sort of you can kind of have like a weird window into aspects of their life, even if distorted through editorial mm. decisions on a program. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so that he was on season, he was in a season six episode of, um, I think his name was Aaron. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It, it's crazy how much eggs that the elite can get on their faces over and over and over and over again. Like the Pelosi thing, this this nightclub shit. Like, I got blamed for that too. I was yes. on that guy's Pelosi? website. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, Gator and I had a fun night. I forgot. That's when I was in Boston getting the Wicked Smart shirt. Um, I was in a hotel in Boston, and I was You're like. Four nights in a man. row that I hadn't had any sleep because I'm like traveling. I went to I went to Charleston. I didn't sleep. I went to Boston. I didn't sleep. And then it's like finally I get back to my hotel room. It's like nine o'clock. Like we, we all went out after the 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 conference that day, and we went down to the bar and we got a drink and we're like hanging out. And it's like, we're all sitting there at the table and we're like, holy shit, it's so late. We got to go to bed. We like pull out our phone. It was like 9.15. We were all just wrecked. And so I go back to my hotel room. And I'm like, I'm finally going to get some sleep. And then I'm on the guy's website that like was whatever the hell was going on with Paul Pelosi. And I'm like, Gator, I'm on this website. 
<laughs> there was something really friend, fishy about friendly, that website. Friendlyfriends.com. Friendly friends. Yeah, that's right. Friendly friends. Yeah. And, and we're a, like tracking it down to some weird pizza place in, <laughs> in Washington. And like, why is this happening? The phone numbers are all lined up. And it's like, who owns the pizza place? The Castle Pizza or Pizza Castle or whichever. Pizza it was. Castle. Yeah. Pizza, pizza Castle. castle. So, so it never to, actually opened or something like really fishy. So to, try to make that you know somewhat of a an actual coherent story because i was sort of rushed there james <laughs> oh no that was all over the place so yeah i'll let you tell um, the, 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 story. the general gist was that so this the the story coming out about david de pape or de pape however you want to pronounce it who is is the person arrested for hitting paul pelosi with the hammer the, it was accused you know said that that he was an acolyte of of james because these these websites that he had these blogs and the one uh, at the time that James mentioned it, it was friendlyfriends.com. And when I got to it, it was still up. They hadn't yet removed it. And so I started I started looking at these uh, these ones. And there was a second one that was on WordPress. And the the friendlyfriends.com, I looked at who registered it. And it was uh, there's on the Internet, whenever you register a, a website, you there's actually like a central place a central database where websites are registered so when you're when you're on your computer and you type in something something.com your computer doesn't know what that is except for the fact that it's talking to other computers who tell it what that is and every every computer basically ha on the internet has like a phone number a pseudo phone number you can think of it as and so it doesn't know the phone number when it's a name like friendlyfriends.com so it's like your phone now it says like hey call mark well, Mark is in your phone and the, his actual phone number is associated with the name Mark. So if you're going to call Mark, your phone knows that. Computers, they talk to a central database and sort of distribute these, these uh, phone numbers, computer phone numbers out. And so there's a registration for this. And David DePape DePape had his name registered for this friendlyfriends.com. So you can sort of say, okay, he was the person who put this up. It wasn't a you know, a false actor throwing this up and saying it was his, it was, it was him. And he had an, he had a phone number listed and an address, but it was also being said in the news that he was homeless. So you, you start looking at these, these references that he has and the phone number that he had was what's called a VoIP number, which is a virtual internet number. So it's a regular, it has a regular landline number that you would call just like if you were growing up in the 2000s or the 90s, but it is technically connected. Vonage was one of the first companies to really become big for this type of thing. So if you think Vonage, just associate what I'm saying, VoIP with Vonage. And so he had this number. And when you looked at, looked up this number on the internet, this number was also being used by this pizza place. And if you look at the, start looking at this pizza place, the pizza place had a website that was never completed. It was the same. It was the same host, which was Wix.com, as David was using for this friendly friends blog. So Wix is a website where if you don't know what you're doing, you can go to Wix and use a graphical interface. You can use your computer to draw basically what you want. You can say, "Hey, I want a blog," and you can. They'll make blog for you. You can set a couple of settings, and it'll look the way that you want. You don't really have to know how to do it. And so they had this, this website that was never completed. And if you looked at Google and did the street view to find this pizza place, it looked like it was never opened. So the question wasn't necessarily, you know, it, whether this was a, a front, it was just why was there this, this pizza place that was never opened used with, you know, with David DePop. It just became this big complete mystery as to how this all became. Now it turns out the, the address that David DePop, a David DePape had listed, he was actually staying at, it was apparently a garage of a, a uh, well-to-do photographer in the area. So, so 
the the address was legitimate when you look when you looked with that up. one exception which is that rather than saying it was the california it had the right address but then it said that it was yes. listed in alabama yeah 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 the, the, the physical address in california sense. he lived at but he for some reason on the website registration he put that it was alabama the state it was very very weird with zip code the california, california. Zip code and yeah, yeah very yeah. strange so so it's one of those things when there's a lack of a lack of information that's solid coming out from the media, you just start to look and, and it gets weird. Now, he was apparently staying in the garage of this photographer's house that he put as the, the, the registration uh, address for the, for the website. So that, that answers that question. And the, the uh, Vonage type phone numbers can change hands pretty regularly. So the fact that this was this non-existent pizza place, while there is a front for it, it was never opened in the last two years. They're just paying, I guess, for the rent an exorbitant cost for a non-existent pizza place. And, and um, the pizza place is in Washington or California? Kent, Washington. Yeah, Kent, Washington, yeah. Is that near he, you? you you can go no, there. but De Pop De Pape De Pop he's in California. This all happened right, in San Francisco. Right. Yeah. San Francisco. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah, this is but all it's, weird. it's a it's an inter internet phone number though, right? So yeah. the, the internet phone number can sort of be loose with the geography of its location. Okay. Basically Gator and I went on a rabbit hole that night, um, because somehow I got wrapped up in that story as well. And um I didn't get but the, but the blog in. entries were just copy pasted, right? Do you guys did well, you yeah, guys look so at the, really there were two blogs? Pasted. There were two blogs. Like images. The WordPress blog, which if you go to my Substack, I go through in full because it, um, there was actually uh, Ben Collins, a reporter for NBC, was actually <laughs> attempting to run run this uh, the same narrative, the stochastic terrorism narrative. Um, he was trying to run full force with that. Guy is such a tool. <laughs> Sorry. Ben Didn't Collins he, like, is a major tool. or something like that. Yes. Well, <laughs> there's a video of Keffels announcing that Ben Collins donated money to her that Ben Collins says is clearly not him. I don't why would know he, what, why would he do that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no. So what happened was, was there was two, there were two uh, blogs. This was different than the friendly friends. And this one was a WordPress blog, <laughs> um, which again is like, an, you know, you can make it without little knowledge of how to make a website. And this one existed for a long time. So I, I believe it went back as early as 2007. And this, this guy actually had legitimate sort of rambling but legitimate lengthy blog entries they were you know rambling and you might say he was crazy from that but they were at least there were at least paragraphs there was at least full sentences going back in 2007 but then there was like this long long gap 15 years of no activity on this wordpress blog and then all of a sudden within a five-day period there was a, just a huge amount of of published content on it which was mostly titles just titles of a blog entry with no content whatsoever, or an image that was, you, if you saw the images, when you can go on my, my uh, substack to go see uh, drrollergator.substack.com, uh, you will see the, the you know, images because I took screenshots of all of them. They're, you would describe them as crazy. They're, they're, they're giant images with mostly blacked out, um, like Microsoft Windows Paint, just taking the mouse and blacking out a whole bunch of stuff and then writing white text, crazy white text over top. It, it, absolutely incoherent, but they were all over a five-day period. So you're talking about 100 posts over five days, most of them actually on two different days. Okay, so you can think about 50 of them being on one day, 50 of them being on another within a five-day period. Ben Collins went on an attack against Michael Schellenberger on Twitter, and Schellenberger had, had done um, an actual travel to the area to talk to neighbors of David DePape, and they all said that he was, you know, uh, had, had um, long-running mental issues, schizophrenia, 
um, thought he was Jesus at one point, uh, took a lot of psychedelic drugs with his, his strange girlfriend, uh, who was also in the news at various points of time throughout the years. And the, the they basically, Michael Schellenberger made a convincing argument this guy has just had an episode. You know, the, what got him to ultimately to this uh, was probably mental illness and or drugs that put him in this state of, you know, I have to go attack Nancy Pelosi or Paul Pelosi where Ben Collins, of course, wanted to take the opposite angle. He has to make this about his broader narrative, which would be to target people like James or or other actors like uh, uh, Tucker Carlson. That's the one they love to go to. Tucker Carlson is is the, the biggest stochastic terrorist in the country at the moment, according yeah. to according to that yeah. narrative. Yeah, I think I'm like he's responsible. seven or eight. Yeah, yeah. This, Tucker Carlson is responsible for every single act of violence in the country. Um, right. he lives so, right so Ben him. Collins openly called Michael Schellenberger a liar. And what he did was he took a, a screenshot of the URLs, the web links that you would go to for these posts and showed that, that there were, uh, you know, like a hundred posts. And he said, these were all made over the last year. And the sleight of hand was he saying these were over the last year, because if you go back a full year, there was absolutely nothing. It was silent for 15 years. But of course, a five day period that was done just like two weeks ago, is within that bounds, right? It's within that range of a year. So he got to say the words within the last year, over the last year, he wrote this post, but there was only five days. So Ben Collins tried to play this narrative that that this this uh, these titles, which would somewhat be reasonably categorized as like QAnon type uh, titles, okay? They would they would they would fall into a category pe reasonable people could see as QAnon. The the titles were just titles. There was no content again, except for these weird images that made no you know that were pretty, pretty bizarre when there was content, but they, the, the URLs contained the date. So when you publish to WordPress, you'll see, you'll see like, you know, 2022 dash 10 dash eight, meaning it's, it's, you know, October 8th, 2022. So the, the, the date exactly is in the, in the URL of the post. Yeah. So that was the first clue. It's like, Hey, look, he, the, he's trying to, to show people, you know, uh, quote evidence and it's really just it's really just smoke and mirrors he's he's telling them conclusions that really if they looked hard at what he's showing are just lies so if you go to my Substack, i'll break i break that all down and you can see images of the actual posts we would be referring to to show that there was no consistency it wasn't it wasn't you know i watched james Lindsay on this particular thing and this is what james Lindsay said and if james Lin you know james Lindsay is right and therefore i should go do this there was none of that type of <laughs> type super of content. random yeah, but very it's like just like five or six of the podcast, like links to five or six of the podcasts that I did over the past two years. Um, I think all of the groomer schools are on there. And then there's like the very first one I ever did that no one's ever listened to is like I literally did it as an experiment just to see if I wanted to podcast or not. And it's kind of dumb and it's about wokeness and interior design from this article I found <laughs> that I just kind of like read about. And uh it's like really weird that that you know it, none of it makes sense. But one of the uh, posts was you know uh, sh uh, should we fornicate with the elephant in the room? And then fornicate is taking substitute for the vulgar vulgar f word that would you would use for fornicate, right? So it was, yeah. should we should we fornicate the elephant in the room? And and the, there was a link to some sort of um, some sort of child's three D animated movie where I guess they replaced uh, a bunch of words randomly with bleeps as if they were curse words. 
right? You know, a general, you know, laughing trick where you take an innocent yeah. sentence, but put a random bleep into it so that it sounds vulgar or something like that. And it, it just a bunch of posts like that over a five day period. This guy, if if those are all him, he probably has had an episode, you know, a psychotic yeah. event or a drug induced psychotic event, read some things, got some dumb idea and carried on with his life as if it was, you know, unidirectional. It was, you know, wind him up and let him go. It wasn't it wasn't something that he thought about over, you know, stewed over for a year, you know, getting more and more uh, unhinged. So when when the event happens where, uh, you know, cops show up, something happens at uh, Paul Pelosi's place and this guy's there and blah, 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 blah. And that first day, CNN just said, this is MAGA, this is MAGA, this is MAGA, this is MAGA. Mm -hmm. And then that just doesn't pan out. And then Ben Collins comes around and starts making all these assertions. It just seems, why would they want to be wrong about this? Why not just not say anything? Why well, just they're, be? They're, they're not wrong. No matter how wrong they are, they're not wrong. See, that's that's always going to be the, the the way that the information comes out will be morphed into how they were right, to some yeah, degree. Yeah. But isn't that inefficient? Details... Isn't that inefficient to? No, to, because to... the coverage the coverage at first being the first allows you to uh, allows you to get everyone who's interested in the topic right off the bat. Just just okay. like if if if. YouTube decides to demonetize one of your videos. I, mean, I don't know how often that has happened to you, but let's say they demonetize it. There's an initial thrust of viewers whenever you first publish that you're going to miss out on. So it's going to be missed, missed sort of revenue, right? So once once you go through the battle with them, maybe a week or so later, they say, "Oh, sorry, now we're gonna we're gonna that was a mistake. Here's your monetization." You know that you've lost out on those initial viewers, monetizing those initial viewers. The same thing occurs from a you know news standpoint where all of the attention comes from the event at the beginning. The, the people, the viewers walk away with an impression as to what the, the gist of the story was. Mm -hmm. And then only the stragglers who continue to follow, you're having to massage the nuance for. And they're on a, they're always imagining the first thing that they were told was reasonable to think. And then as the details don't pan out, it's just more refinement. Right. It's it's more more refinement. But the gist was always reasonable and right. You, you can see that same thing with the people who um, were all in on the Russia collusion conspiracy thing. Right. You know, no matter how many details come out that it was like completely invented from by people and it was all a deliberate push to to try to derail Trump. Um, they'll, they'll always say, well, it was reasonable to be concerned about it. It's always reasonable because of that first push. So it doesn't matter what details change over same time. Thing COVID. Same thing with COVID. As long as you're always first. reasonable to yeah. lock down, it was always reasonable to extend the lockdowns. It was always reasonable to force everybody to take an injection. It was always reasonable. It, same thing. Not most people are not conditioned to be able to say I was being unreasonable then. So you're always going to have them say I, that was the reasonable thing to do. Every all of my friends were thinking the same thing. You know, that's just the reasonable inference. So mm -hmm. it, it from There's from a a trying to your, uh, go ahead. Sorry, I was from from a, a seeking truth of what the actual scenario is. Yeah, it's inefficient. The, it's you're just adding confusion, but adding confusion is not a problem if you can just blanket the area with a particular narrative, right? right. And the extra lens <laughs> here is that we're dealing with journalists who, the second they admit that they were wrong, their brand is damaged, and so they have beyond the normal level of human, you know, inability to admit that they were wrong because in a sense their paycheck depends on them having had fair and balanced and reasonable coverage from the you know very first minute that the thing happened um it's a it's a well it should be a bigger cost because could you imagine somebody like ben collins and coming out and saying well 
you know, 81 of the last 90 stories that I, I pushed here where I, w- I was flat out thumbing my ass and uh, just kind of made a bunch of shit up to sound good on TV because that's like kind of my brand. Like that's the end of his career, maybe. I mean, he'd probably get a job at the White House after that in the present <laughs> circumstances, but um, they put him well, in they just dress. They just moved that one uh, NBC NBC anchor they, when he came out and said that, you know, he was he was with uh, some troops and he was taking heavy gunfire or whatever. And it turned out to be a completely made up story. They just moved him to MSNBC. So they have a what, they Dan Rather? Have a, uh, no, it wasn't Dan Rather. Um, he just re- like fully retired for, as an anchor. Um, he, he There's a there, you'll find memes for him. I, I apologize for not remembering his name, but, you know, he was he was the NBC nightly news anchor for a while. And he was. He was telling this story over and over again about being in a helicopter that was take, taking, you know, ground to air fire. And and uh, he the story wound up coming out as false. And then then he got the media coverage of of how memory can sometimes deceive your own memory can sometimes deceive you. And innocently, mm-hmm. he, of course, he didn't he didn't intend to embellish a story. It was just, you know, the oh, that fickle memory, you know, yeah, which could be my, true. But but that's how they do the coverage. I hate when my memory just inserts details about like a helicopter gunfight that I was in that <laughs> I completely forgot about. Yeah. So he I got he got relegated I... to MSNBC because you, you can still keep your keep your job to some degree, even if you don't keep the same position. So they'd, well, they'd find something for him if they. So it, it seems like uh, CNN is an uh, example where they're just producing propaganda, producing, well, it's not even really propaganda. They're giving their first, they have a formula, they, they demonize, they, they interpret the data, and then it just kind of goes away and they go into the next story. And over time- CNN was mostly they, propaganda, so you can, you can feel free to say that. Over time, yeah. they are losing <laughs> credibility. So over time, it doesn't seem like a, eventually people catch on, like, the media's lying to me, the media's sure, lying to me, right? Sure, but you see, the, there's a, there's a, there's a smuggling that goes in. There's a laundering, an idea laundering. So the it doesn't matter if CNN winds up being seen as 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 untrustworthy necessarily, right? Because all that really would happen is they would pretend that they were fine. There was no problem. Their viewership would go down. And as long as someone was willing to fund that, now now there is a place where stories, because it is a legitimate news outlet, can be referenced and copied. So you can get duplicate articles of the same type of premise, or at least the remnants that can be that can withstand the pressure. So if if the whole the whole presentation falls, there might be redeemable aspects of it, and then those can be carried along in other articles that that you know use CNN as the first mover. But CNN's involvement in this story is now kind of buried, and so it's just a, a washed, a laundered sort of of narrative that gets replicated all across. So. Yes, it seems like it would be counterproductive to harm the particular outlet and have it lose credibility, but those types of things, as long as people are willing to fund them, uh, fund their their losses from an audience standpoint, they can still exist and they can Mm -hmm. still be, they can still have utility in the broader, in the broader circumstance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 100% correct. I mean, idea laundering is sort of the name of their game. Somebody even said recently, and I'd have to look up their example, but that they had even found places where in the academic literature, of course, that's our friend Brett Weinstein, I think, is the coiner of the idea laundering term. And he was 
at least he is to my knowledge was the first person to use it and he was using it in reference to the grievance studies thing but i recently saw an example somebody had posted somewhere on social media where there was actually like a circle of citations where you know such and such was being reported as being real and important and probably medical and it cited this and it cited that and it cited the other thing and it cited the other thing and it went back and it turned out to be the same first author as the new article that had just gone in a big circle um but it made it look like there was this huge body of literature reinforcing this line of thought and this idea that the the news is actually probably believe it or not, worse than academia for idea laundering. It just doesn't have as much gravitas. Well, do I have an example if you, if you sure. don't have? Okay. I don't. Um, so, okay. <laughs> I mean, I cited one of my own paper. We, I guess, cited one of our own papers when we did the grievance studies affair so that we could start to do that, to build like a daisy chain of uh, well, citations. In the news, in the news I, it might've been 20, 2021, summer 2021. Um, there was a Rolling Stone first got the ball moving where it was an article where they said that um, ERs were overflowing with people who were self-administering ivermectin and, and uh, you know, harming themselves. And it became this huge thing like Alabama where, or something where people like Brett Weinstein, who who have uh, have a belief that uh, ivermectin has use in, in preventing or fighting against covid um that that they were causing immense harm because now not only are they injuring people who would be taking ivermectin they are also injuring people who aren't taking ivermectin by overflowing er's okay so now there's no room for regular people who need attention it's all these people who are doing you know taking stupid horse paste as the the term was and so rolling stone ran with it which became then ex an excuse for second third copies of the same the same article and rolling stone had got it from a local reporter of where this er was supposedly overflowing a local reporter i had traced this back they were watching a a zoom conference from uh the medical professionals just giving sort of like a monthly update and one guy had an anecdotal situation of someone who took uh, the horse paste version of ivermectin and had a bad reaction. And he then just said, you know, hey, people, please don't do this. You know, we, we do want to, we have a nursing shortage. You know, we have these things where it's already causing us uh, problems, you know, uh, with capacity. Please just don't do something like that. So that local reporter turned it into <laughs> we've turned away gunshot victims because i guess he had given an example of someone who generically not related to the ivermectin was a gunshot victim who was turned away due to capacity so she chained them together now uh, er's are overflowing so now uh, rolling stone copies it then rachel maddow gets gets the traction going by copying copying that article on twitter and so now there's like you know 70 different outlets copying the same story and so now on everyone's minds er's are overflowing because brett weinstein says that ivermectin has utility yeah like it's just there's a there's a that it, it works it works right the, the, people walk away with that impression they don't get the update and it, it just works so that's a tried and true great strategy to go flood that yeah. zone yeah well that's interesting i mean uh james uh, among us three you're the one who gets uh promoted as as the um you know most violent man in america or seventh most uh violent yeah, somewhere man down the list america, but i was number so. two on the groomer report by uh the hrc so human rights What's... campaign put out a document blaming the top 10 groomer 
accounts on Twitter, people who call accounts that, that, that call out grooming or whatever. And so we're the stochastic, that's like the, the like official organizational document about upon which a lot of these stochastic narratives, stochastic terrorism narratives are built. It turns oh. out I was number two. Uh, on the list for the amount of reach that I had had in calling people groomers after Marjorie Taylor Greene. Right. And I beat out Lauren Boebert, which apparently upset Lauren a little bit that she couldn't <clears> be number two. But I mean, what about Chris Rufo? He's, he, I don't know he... if Rufo was on there for the groomers. Was... Um, Jack Posobiec was, Libs of TikTok was. Mm. Um, I don't think Rufo was calling out groomers. Uh, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's a little bit more politically polished as a, as a way to phrase that with his presentation. Uh, well, but, but being, but being uh, a degenerate or deplorable, being in that position, being targeted in this manner by this great big machine. Um, I'm just wondering how do you deal with that? How would one deal with that? If like Dr. Lager has, has um, any frankly, ideas about uh, it? I, I, I literally laugh when I see it. I mean, I, I thought it was fantastic. I think I might've been kicked off of Twitter when it came out. So I couldn't go gloat. Um, but I really wanted to, I can't remember when that happened. I know where I was when I saw it, I was actually in San Diego. Uh, so I could piece back together. I think I had already been kicked off of Twitter, um, for a couple of weeks when I went out there. And so I laugh about it, frankly, I don't care. Uh, I, it's like people, you know, ask me, you know, things, uh, no, it's like when I got, you know, like Gators in the situation where he has to confess to calling somebody by doing violence in a tweet by calling somebody mashed potato head or something like that. And that good, um, yeah. yeah, so they want you to like confess. And like, I frequently would actually just delete my tweet. And I understand taking the stand that Gators taking, I understand that Babylon B did that. And I appreciate it. Then people sometimes ask me, well, why didn't you just, why don't you take those stands? And it's like, because I literally don't give a shit about Twitter's rules. I don't recognize it as a legitimate authority. And so I just don't care. I'm playing a game and okay. Um, and in my so-called appeal, when they actually banned me from Twitter, um, I even said as much, I, I literally, my appeal was you made me falsely confess to a bunch of stuff. I never did anything wrong. You're a bunch of communist assholes or something like that. Uh, was that was my so-called appeal. Um, I just don't take it seriously. So in an outlet, like the human rights campaign or fuck the white house, if it were to come out and call me, you know, a stochastic terrorist, it's probably kind of serious, but I don't know how to do anything but laugh about it at this point, because these institutions, in my opinion, have been so delegitimized that I can't take them seriously. That doesn't mean that there won't be serious consequences to my life, like getting maybe kicked off Twitter was somewhat serious. The Department of Justice coming after me would be probably fairly serious if that happened. But I just don't give a shit. These people, I mean, I don't know if this is like Yuri's demoralization or what so when i see this stuff i i laugh i just laugh i don't care um uh, so it doesn't bother me at all in fact it's usually like hey look here's another badge of honor like let me print this out and like wave it around on a stage in front of people i've been introduced at probably a third or maybe 40 percent of the talks that i've given since i got kicked off of twitter with like tremendous accolades for being somebody who calls out groomers and who got kicked off of Twitter for standing up for children in the United States. <laughs> it's like this huge mark of pride. So it's like, there's this weird hmm. bifurcation of almost of reality in a sense. Mm -hmm. And so dealing with, it's not hard. Like psychologically, it's not hard. Yeah. I, none of this well, is legitimate, but well, part of it, part of it is, is that, uh, you know, certain, certain uh, tricks of Alinsky haven't necessarily fully upgraded to 
to meet the modern Ooh. the modern area. Well, one of one of the rules for radicals uh, that Solinsky wrote down is basically that you pick a particular target and then you personalize it. So that now that the the topic itself, the the subject, gets represented by an individual that you can you can focus on. So in this case, James would be a particular target. Now that worked. Went back in the '60s when Alinsky was you know, promoting this, the, the, the news network or the community news network would be much more tight knit. So, you know, picking a target, or even if it was a larger target that might be a national target, at least the news distribution would focus everyone's attention on that person for a period of time. Now with the internet and things moving as fast as they do, mm. the information, the information cycle being so quick, doing that requires you to do it too many times to where people are just they're they're tired of the momentum you can't keep people that energized and focused that long so like it would work for Saul and it would work for for people for decades as long as you could do that um not continuously you can't you know another one of Saul and Ski's rules is that you know if, if people don't enjoy the tactic that you're engaging in it's a bad tactic and that people will get fatigued so you know uh, mm -hmm. james james being targeted can get people motivated for a particular period of time but it has its its longevity before they'll get kind of tired of targeting james and they'll pick a new target and maybe that target will get them energized trump was able to keep them animated for quite a while because he was you know the president and daily tweeting but now that he was he's gone and not back on twitter they don't even know what to do with that so mm -hmm. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is there, is there, uh, aside from actual wanting to groom children, is there, from the standpoint of the left, which I am going to surmise is not, the left is not a bunch of groomers, right? The people who are leftish, the Democratic Party. Yeah, they're Party. structurally groomers. They're not literally all groomers. But why, why are they compelled to double down on something like children's drag shows it just seems like a losing battle like sterilizing children wrong. like how okay so but they what's the psychology that anything and why why is where's that code well, where's okay, that built so there in are two reasons like there's the internal reason there's a real reason the real reason is that the second that they admit that they're wrong about anything it, it opens a question about the next thing back so if they were wrong about drag shows then they maybe were wrong about you know, ivermectin, or maybe they were wrong about whatever other thing. And it's still like, well, if you were wrong about that, how do we know that you were right about all this other stuff? This is the catastrophe of legitimation by pyrology, if we look back at the postmodern literature, that you end up painting yourself into this box where the consensus system that you're operating in has to basically become pseudo-infallible or quasi-infallible in order to maintain continuing what it's doing. Internally, the logic is it's much simpler it's much, much simpler. The logic is really just that anything that associates you with the right wing is super, super bad. And so anything that could cause one of your peers that's a left-leaning or leftist person to be able to credibly accuse you within that bubble of 
espousing conservative views is a death sentence for you. I mean, look at characters like Jesse Singal, for example. Just, just who, about to bring him up as the example of he what, is like how, the quintessential how ineffective example. It, it does, it does, he doesn't get any traction. He doesn't right. get any traction because of that reason. Exactly. He, he tries to stay deeply ensconced in this left bubble, but he is just autistic enough or whatever it is that he can't leave the trans thing alone um, or he's just, you know, connected to reality still enough or whatever. And this causes him to be branded as a uber conservative transphobe, which he is then like, it's bizarre. I can't figure out why they call me this. But that is actually the internal logic. I mean, you can see this with any of your Blue Anon friends. If you get into a conversation with them, you will find this almost paralyzing fear, almost a panic. Anytime something comes up where for them to admit some feature of reality would cause them to have to espouse something that conservatives say. And it's like they're trying to get it off of them like they splashed bleach in their eyes. You have like to think about it structurally with with the the rhetoric right so okay if 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 child if, if children attending these these very sexualized drag shows is a problem well there aren't one million of them per day okay so the quantity of this particular phenomenon is is not uh, is not the everyday experience for everyone you don't go to a grocery store and see uh, you know uh, th- these these shows and children attending these sexualized shows. These so so it's not every everyday experience. So if you then begin to focus on them, you are you are communicating a right wing talking point. Okay, you are you are diverting attention from real problems to focus on this tiny thing, this thing that's only happening in the the you know very rarely. You know that that the the rhetoric becomes uh, counter uh, counter defeating to a person who is on that side trying to maintain boundaries, and it, it because now they they are communicating right wing talking points because they, this is not the biggest problem in the world. Okay, so you're talking from problems. the perspective of the left of some uh, like a news reporter ensconced in the left saying maybe we should tackle this issue in order to you know correct so correct because hey you know someone who's on the left who is is a you know an otherwise reasonable person and I don't mean to say that people on the left are always unreasonable but you know there there's there are reasonable people who are on the left who find themselves sort of surrounded uh where they they attempt to say hey we as a group the left we as a group we used to be extremely reasonable and now i'm starting to see a bunch of crazy uh, you know encroach this space i'm going to take a stand i'm going to i'm going to start to solidify this line the moment that you start to do it and you start to focus on things like children's drag shows the, it becomes a you are taking a right wing talking point. Okay, you are you are just floating their talking points. Mm. It, it becomes do you're not playing talk into about their hand. Thing. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're playing into their hand because now you are amplifying the concerns of the right wing, and and so and legitimizing their concerns. Exa- exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Legitimizing. That's a that's a great you know, linguistic trick, right? And and so therefore, it is almost impossible unless unless things have hit a critical mass. If things hit a critical mass, yes, you can probably you can probably mention it and get away with it. But that's that's a point where even even the, the craziest side of the progressives know that they've made a mistake. <laughs> they've gone too far and then they, they pull back and, and try to regroup later. But but for the most part, again, if, if, if the quantity of the the phenomenon is not large, it is or or they have gone to great lengths to try to keep it under underground you know whisper type of of situations 
then then it does become uh, very difficult to actually bring it bring it up and raise concern about it you're supposed to do that behind doors in the groups in the in the circles where all of the progressives have dominated and tried to massage everybody to the, to the same types of opinions that's mm -hmm. where you're supposed to bring it up you're not supposed to embarrass the whole side by mentioning it publicly yeah that's a huge a huge piece i don't think people really fully appreciate how allergic to being identified as on the right people even on the mainstream left are. I mean, this is a matter of social identity that, that's rather profound uh, to the point where, you know, I also agree with Gator that it's not correct to say that there are no reasonable people on the left. Of course there are, but there is this kind of functionary irrationality that comes with espousing anything. This is the thing that I blame John Stewart for, frankly, but uh, that, that comes with espousing anything that can be deemed a right-wing standpoint and or point of view or, or talking point or anything. You cannot be associated with the right. And I mean, this is written throughout communist literature. Ferreri talks about it. He says the revolution to be authentic has to be perpetual. The minute it stops being perpetual revolution, it becomes the status quo, which is right wing in, intrinsically. Um, he says it yeah. risks becoming sclerotic and bureaucratic and imposing a vision, which is, in his exact words, necessarily right wing. And so it's the same thing with how did the trans movement come out of feminism and then destroy feminism by obliterating the concept, the stable concept of a woman. It's because once you adopt social constructivism with regard to gender, you don't have any tool to stop social constructivism for a feminist to come out and say gender is a social construct but biological sex is real which is the gender critical position that is literally the position of gender critical feminism for them to say that is for a trans activist to say you're just trying to maintain some of the status quo so it, it's which means you're necessarily right wing and there's no greater fear for a kind of purity driven leftist movement than to be associated with right wing thinking, right wing talking points, right wing attitudes. And it creates this situation where um, in some sense, they not only can they not can admit that they've screwed up unless it gets so bad that they have to do a mass retreat, in which case they're going to gaslight and say it never happened uh, after asking for amnesty uh, or something <laughs> like that. And, and then, Unless that comes about, they, they cannot go backwards. They can't even stop. You can't even stand astride the, the current of history and say, slow down, because at that point, you know, doesn't that sound a little conservative? Doesn't that sound a little right wing? And they will. Th there's always somebody to your left who will eat your lunch and your social networks may very well depend on that hmm. not happening to you. Um, the, the logic of the, of, of, of the sort of Damocles of cancel culture as much as it you know screws with right wing people's lives or normal people's lives they literally are the left left wing is living like they can glance up every few minutes and see that sword dangling by a thread and it takes mm. one right wing opinion and the sword of damocles is coming down through their skull if you don't know what the sword of damocles is i i, I urge you to read more but uh it, it's a the idea is that the, the Damocles' sword is hanging by a string above his head, and he's in the in the throne. And if he makes a wrong decision, they're going to cut the string, and the sword's going to come down and stab through him. And so they they this is real. I mean, you can hear it, and I do blame John Stewart for this uh, overwhelmingly because oh, so. we were conditioned through the '90s and early 2000s, The Daily Show in particular, 
with this idea, very broadly conditioned culturally, that right-wing talking points, whether for legitimate reasons or not, looking back at Fox News, which was his typical target of his jokes, was something to be made fun of. It was something embarrassing to espouse. It was something embarrassing to be associated with. And kind of the cultural hip set, especially of younger people, no matter where they fell on the political spectrum, was that which is believed by Fox News or Fox News viewers is um, risable. It's something literally to be made fun of, which creates a strong sense evil. of shame with being yeah. a, with, with a, you know being associated with those views. And this has created the cultural condition that is really, if you asked me, you know, what is the one thing that's enabled woke to flourish to the degree that it has? It's this. It's this cultural condition that being associated with anything that might show up on Fox News, which isn't even that far right, frankly, uh, and is just another tool of the regime, frankly. But anything that would show up on Fox, that that is a instantaneously disqualifying thing. So, for example, when the Grievance Studies Affair came out, we got calls from everybody and their mother to go on TV, to be interviewed, whatever. And so Dr. Carlson's people called us, asked us to come on. Laura Ingram's people called us, asked us to go on. And we said no to those invitations, which I at this point regret. But I remember talking with our friend Brett Weinstein about it at the time. And his advice was sagacious. It was because he had done with Evergreen, he had gone on Tucker Carlson, he had gone on Fox News and discussed it. And he said, it's up to you. It's a balance. You know how bread is. It's a balance. It's a trade-off. You have to make your decision and you have to think it through. You have to do what you think is best. But what you do need to understand is at least at the 2018 cultural moment, if you go on there, there's no bridge home. That's the way he phrased it. There is no bridge home. Once you get that association, association yeah, just appearing on, on Tucker Carlson is the death knell. It does, you're forever discarded <laughs> if you've ever yeah, appeared right. on Tucker Carlson. You will never get another invitation to a left-wing platform. So either you go, as they would put it, full right-wing grifter or your career is over. And then they mm-hmm. will use that against you. The second you appear on anything right-wing again, Look at the example of Colin Wright, for example. They did this to Colin Wright very viciously. They boxed him out of anything left wing because he was speaking up about the gender and, and the sex stuff. He ends up going on, I think it was Tucker, but maybe it wasn't Tucker. Maybe it was something smaller on Fox. And then they just boxed him out of everything, including an academic career. And then once this happened, he talked to other right wing outlets. And the second he talked to him, he said, oh, well, he's just become a right wing media figure he's just a yep. grifter darling of the alt-right like, i I've, I've known colin for years i don't know his opinion on uh, on uh, progressive income taxes okay things that were normal left-wing types of ideas things that you would discuss in the early 2000s or the late 90s okay which would be like a central motivating thing that would make the dichotomy between what would be like a you know a left or right type of discussion okay he is solely focused on one particular one particular thing that they want to protect and he is now completely on the right. He could he could totally have some, you know, a, a sort of Robert Reich, um, you know, progressive, progressive economic view. And and it's never been a concern to me what his particular entire worldview is, because he's my friend. Right. He's just my friend. We talk about certain things and he tells me his opinion and I tell him mine. And that's how we we interact. But because he's focused on this one particular thing that they have to protect, he is now 100 percent right wing. He's he is a, nothing but a grifter, and you, it's that's what you will be tarnished with. And if you can't withstand that, it is a lot of pressure. It is a yeah. lot of pressure. And if you depend on you know, or or your career depends on appearing 
you know, on a balanced gamut of media that's over. Uh, you will not be interviewed by a left-wing outlet again, except in the potential for a stitch-up, probably ever again. Um, they will box you out. And again, he, he's out of academia. He didn't pursue, he didn't have, I mean, yeah, if you know okay, the details so of that, he got boxed out of academia. Um, this this isn't list. sustainable. This is, you need, you need a circulation of elites. This is, this is uh, dooming the democratic or the leftish wing of the elite to a brain drain. Like only people who are total power hungry sociopaths who don't believe anything that they're saying are going to be able to exist in that. Like well, all the did, honest hard the FTX people. scenario, the FTX yeah. meltdown. That's I mean, that's that's your that's your proof of proof of concept right there. So you've right? described <laughs> communism, Benjamin. It's correct. Yeah. But yeah, FTX is a great example of that as well. Um and how's that guy doing? Is he in prison yet? To, to, no. to quickly, to quickly, yeah, we can uh, we can go into that. that so I wanted to hear Just your guys' thoughts. To quickly summarize it, uh, it, there there is a movement called uh, effective altruism that that at its at its you know basic concept is that if you are going to uh, be charitable, if you're going to give to to uh, charities and be altruistic in your behavior, you should probably really focus on getting the most bang for your buck, and which is a very reasonable um, set. But then due to human nature, it uh, it has like a, an amount of literature behind it. It becomes sort of pathologized. And then because we are uh, uh, social creatures, there's a competition involved. So now people get status and the game becomes getting status for being the best effective altruist. And this 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 character who's uh, and ju just to just to bring it a little closer to reality rather than going and setting up a soup kitchen or like working with the homeless or delivering uh, mm -hmm. bread to orphans you give your money to charities that to change the climate africa. you have to rid yeah. africa of malaria yeah because that's the you win the game there right you yeah. win you win the effective altruism competition if you do that if you succeed in that endeavor so uh, the 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 character who's um uh, acronyms are SBF, uh, Sam Bank, Bankman-Fried. He, he, is, he is this person who started a cryptocurrency exchange and had, had a network of, of friends and his, his um, physical archetype, he is, a, he is your, your artistic nerd. Okay, he doesn't. He doesn't, uh, you know, actually dress up. He he's very slouchy. He uh, is not. Doesn't even shave eloquent. completely. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's he, he looks like he just rolled out of bed whenever yeah. he's on on television. And, and he's tweaking and he, the <laughs> tweaking out too. Oh yeah, he's, he's, it looks he's like it. He's Adderall all day. <laughs> yeah. He's he's the cause for the Adderall shortage right now. Um, <laughs> but um, so so he. He, his forward presentation was always the premise that he is living his life in order to earn enough money to give the most money. Like he, he was playing that game. And, and so therefore, um, you were, you were basically supposed to trust that, that the decisions he was making were always going to be for the best reasons because the, he, his, his goal, his target, his focus is to do the most good. So therefore, if you engage in business with him, you are also by proxy focused on doing the most good it's it's a funnel of, of everyone's intentions directly into the most good and it and, aligns with uh, uh not not sel but um esg too like so so companies that that are working in uh effective altruism get a high uh environmental what was what's esg again like uh, environmental social, social and governance governance right so yeah so that, that that one's a little less into. because it, it's mostly just because people are already doing it you have to follow follow these things so you get the uh, enough 
um, but it, aligns, a, it aligns with that uh, regime value set that's already it's what, sell, it's what sells it to the average person right so you 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 get the stamp that says that you're doing the good things and not the yeah. bad things um but but this this person ran with this as their entire their entire uh forward forward presentation and um sam harris actually interviewed him prior to the the collapse and then did a a uh, retrospective podcast just the other day on on his previous podcast and says himself he detected no deception in in this sam bankman fried and just because i didn't finish the the full setup for people who are unaware um, this this uh, cryptocurrency exchange was basically a, a complete Ponzi scheme. Now, the the actual thing that brought them down is 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 slightly technical in in a classical boring bank sense, which is just that the bank didn't have the bank in this question is the cryptocurrency exchange. It didn't have the money on hand as people tried to get their money out of it. So there was a a run on the bank as as the old term goes, and it just wasn't there, which brought brought down its collapse. But there were many structures inside of the games that they were playing that were like ponzi scheme like but the the way that he you know promoted his, his his endeavor the way that he got wide positive coverage from all of the media sources was was that he was selling it as we are the best good people we are we are better than all the other good people we are the best good people and that is our that is our sole purpose in life and um a a reporter from vox was sort of his his friend throughout all of this or at least he considered them a friend and um immediately when the story became hot she started leaking dms after after the fact so you can find them her name is kelly i don't remember her last name but she's from box so you'll find them um and the the background conversation was him admitting that it's all it's all just bullshit that that people who are buying into this are dupes and and you know sam harris says that he doesn't detect any any deception and that's not i'm not even necessarily going to say that that's sam harris's fault okay because uh, this sam guy could have been a great um great Salesman. bullshit artist yeah, yeah he could have been fantastic in his persuasive persuasive capabilities but the problem is the the inability to detect true from false and having absolutely no other criteria by which to discern whether or not the, the endeavor is something you should engage in is a giant wide opening for for people to be deceptive right the fact that this this deception couldn't incur and you'd have no way of detecting it is a problem which makes it just right for people to copy and emulate and that's that's what you see in a lot of the social movements whether they have business uh business endeavors attached to them or not it's, it is that I am doing the best good. So therefore you are a good person by liking me, by believing in me, by following the things that I'm saying, by repeating the words that I am saying, you are now also a good person. By putting up the flag of, of um, Ukraine in your profile, you have now done the thing that, that certifies your alignment. And in fact, a lot of, a lot of the left has, as, as I would say, Sam, it kind of showed with his inability to detect fraud, a lot of them do not have the ability to discern a person's character through repeated interactions. They need those signals in order to feel comfortable hmm. with a person. As soon as, as soon as tensions get high, if you do not begin signaling with other people, they will begin to doubt you. They will be, begin to get suspicious of you. It is, it is very unnerving to them when, when people do not follow the milieu of the, the social environment around them, which is why you have the, the, the black square on your profile picture when, when Black Lives Matter came up. You know, they eventually they'll say, hey, all this person did was put up a black square and they didn't do anything after that. But if you don't put up the black square, 
the question is why. I believe there was a woman um, making a list of all the country music artists who didn't put up a black square, okay, because they're, they're going after you. If you don't signal, they are suspicious. So it actually conditions people to only signal. So you actually have no markers of what authenticity looks like, because authenticity looks like you going with the crowd. It's a very, <laughs> very perverse hmm. uh, circular dynamic, but that's what winds up building. And that's why people... I'm crazy, by the way, <laughs> is because I literally don't care. If you actually wanted to boil it down, and I know we've had many <laughs> thrilling conversations about my behavior on social media, et cetera, uh, throughout the years, <laughs> my brand on social media boils down to I don't give a shit what other people think. In fact, I've just started to say this, and it's kind of an interesting little social experiment for me to see what happens when people get this. They say something to me, you should blah, 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 blah. And instead of coming back with some argument, I just reply, I don't care. And you want to talk about people losing their fucking minds. Holy crap. I don't care. I don't care what you think. And the fact that I have come across as a person who there are certain social norms. You're not supposed to talk this way. If you're a public figure, you're not supposed to manspread in your profile picture. You're not supposed to respond with somebody saying something about your manspreaded profile picture by zooming in on your crotch and sending that picture. You're not supposed to do a lot of different things and I just don't care causes them to, I mean, largely anybody who pays much attention to me will, will very clearly understand that I, I have not lost my mind at all. Uh, but the fact that I refuse to signal anything very much looks like having completely lost my mind to people whose entire understanding of how to tell when somebody's mentally well is that they're going along with whatever signals you're supposed to send up. Like right now with the, you know, idiotic Nick Fuentes going with Donald Trump and yay or Kanye or whatever the hell we're supposed to call him now. This whole thing, there's like this movement on Twitter that you have to condemn, blah, 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 blah. And if you don't condemn whatever it is, the fuck we're supposed to condemn. I don't I don't even know. Anti-Semitism, Nick Fuentes, Kanye. I don't know who we're supposed to condemn. Ron DeSantis, probably. I don't know what we're supposed to do. I don't care. I'm not interested in the story like one iota. But what you see is that there's this sure. gigantic movement of people who are, in some sense, very normie core, where if you don't signal the thing, they become very suspicious of your motives, and they actually believe that you're insane or evil or in cahoots with something bad. You saw that at critical mass, and this is where this is where it sort of was counterproductive. But during during the 2020 sort of you know riot movements, you saw those those videos where a, a car would be attempting to move through a particular area that was being blocked off and they were demanding the person put up their fist in order to gain their trust to allow them to go past. And at, at that point, they didn't even actually care if the person believed anything that they were doing. They just wanted the, the action. They wanted the signal because that's that's what they're trying to condition everyone on. And that classic photo of, you know, about the, the 50, the 50 people in rage surrounding the woman sitting, sitting uh, on the outside diner, you know, thing where they're putting up their fist and demanding that she also put up her fist, you know, the, the actually fairly brave woman in that circumstance, <laughs> like you guys are crazy. What the hell? And it's you know, shocking, that's... actually, if you know that story, just to kind of interject, she actually in an exit interview, if that's what we call this after the fact, said that she's a big supporter of the Black Lives Matter right. movement and all this, but she wasn't going to be compelled to raise her fist. Right. And and the number of people that attempted to persuade her, you can kind of uh, take just the virtual version of of what that would be like the moment that you actually trying to go, hey, you guys are going a little bit off the rails or, or this particular thing that's happening on our side is is no bueno. You know, that that's the reaction that you will get. That was just a physical manifestation at a 
particularly bizarre height of adrenaline for those people. And it, and it is that you just, you do the thing, you do the thing, you put your fist up in the air and you, you signal solidarity, you chant black lives matter. You do, you do all that. And cause if you don't, we are suspicious, but I don't want to wear a ribbon. Yes. It's the Seinfeld episode where you don't want to wear the ribbon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it, it is, it's classic. Um, but I actually agree and it, with, with what Gator said that, that there is a, I it, this always comes off really badly. I think there is a fundamental difficulty in any of these kind of mob scenarios, but it's predominant on the left, I think, in general. Uh, but I, you could see it in right-wing pietist movements as well or, or Puritan movements if, if those were to come up where um, there's a, almost an inability to process what you see in front of you except through interpreting the way that signals are mm -hmm. conformed to or not conformed to. Um, I actually put out a podcast a little while back saying that I had identified, in my opinion, the, the fundamental psychological issue that leads to kind of radical leftism, which I believe is an inability to perceive legitimacy in hierarchy. So there are things that make hierarchies legitimate. It could be seniority, it could be experience, it could be being able to do hmm. the job, it could be paid more money to get in. There are things that make different hierarchies in different circumstances, you know, more or less legitimate. And there are corruptions on all, on all hierarchies. But if you actually lack the ability to perceive what makes a hierarchy legitimate, you're very likely to espouse a philosophy that holds that all hierarchies should be abolished because you can't figure out how to legitimize any given hierarchy. And then when you try to put that into practice, you're given one and only one option eventually, which is to install kind of an upside down reversed hierarchy that undoes the ex the previous hierarchy while also having to manage and run things, including the destruction of the previous hierarchy. And all you really have to have is this lack of ability to perceive legitimacy in social structures and all of it follows. So when people Until ask it's me, it's too late example, and you have a stolen. Well, Until, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. eventually what's going to happen is is you will end up with a with a megalomaniacal psychopath taking advantage of these corrupt and, and goofy structures. Like I've proven repeatedly uh, with my own work and career just how easy it is to emulate leftist nonsense. And if I were if I were a psychopath playing the game or if I were what I'm accused of being, which is a grifter, I would, of course, just be saying all of the things the way I'm supposed to say them at all times and be rising through the ranks as the biggest star ever uh, in the field, um, writing 30 papers, academic papers a year, saying whatever I want to say. Uh, well, the whole would, thing. would it be sufficient enough to just do that work without also calling out people who are not good enough? Did you, would you have to do both? Could you rise through the ranks of this power structure without like beating people down? I don't think that that's possible that? really ever. Uh, I think that that's, that's what rising through the ranks is. I actually just recorded a podcast hmm. again that I haven't put out yet. That's about what I call positive and negative competition, which are kind of two modes of competing. We maybe have spoken about this in the past. I don't remember Benjamin, but hmm. positive competition is this kind of, you know, Olympian ideal where I'm going to go train and I'm going to get better and you're going to go train and you're going to get better. And when we show up, we're both running, you know, sub 10, 100 meter dashes because we've worked so hard to become the best at the thing we're doing or you know i'm making coffee you're making coffee and you're going to roast the beans and i'm going to do the thing and we're going to have the best coffee shop ever and the next thing you know you have like you know rivendell 
quality shit happening because everybody's trying to make the best possible thing to outcompete their their competitors that's positive competition but then i could also just say that benjamin puts poop in his coffee and uh try to undercut my competition by saying by smearing you or by by saying that you offer something crap or it's fake or whatever else or in the olympics we could have a full tanya harding whacking nancy kerrigan in the knee so she can't do her ice skating um which literally happened and there's actually a logic that shifts where when you are the small guy it strongly behooves you to outcompete the big guy but when you get to a certain size whether it's market share or whatever it no longer really behooves you to outcompete other people it's too expensive to do more r&d and you have lots of resources with which you can whack-a-mole your opponents what we see uh kind of in leftism is that they're a little bit more attack dog and they don't have anything really to refine their product uh, and their product, in fact, is criticism. It is, in fact, negative logic. It is negative thinking by definition. Yeah. And so crapping on the guy before you and taking his spot it, or probably, well, yeah, it is going to be the guy before you and taking his spot is going to be kind of key. I'm going to say something that's kind of letting a cat out of the bag because I often end up doing that on your show. I said at the beginning that I just got back from the UK. Gator knows why I went to the UK. Uh, you probably know that I went to the UK because I was invited to debate a woke proposition at the Oxford Union. And so I, on my own dime, went to the United Kingdom, spent like $7,000 so I could do this because um, they don't pay for you. And um, debated the proposition, uh, has woke culture gone too far? In fact, the, it was it's phrased this way, this house is resolved that woke culture has gone too far. And the... Um, Hmm. illustrious geniuses at Oxford University, for some reason, mistakenly believed that I am woke and put me on the woke side of this debate. Oh, cool. Which became very fun for me. And I yeah. did go and and, and I, I argued this. And a lot of the things we've touched on kind of come up in this regard, because one of the things that I argued, for example, was that Karl Marx was a conservative because he was a white European male who had all these privileges and could overlook the facts of social and, and, and cultural capital that he benefited from. In fact, the man was a racist. And so Karl Marx was a conservative, and that's obviously why his program failed and we have to have social justice now. That was part of my argument. Uh, I also began by impugning the Oxford Union itself by saying that, um, that they even this relates to what we were just saying a few moments ago with the John Stewart kind of thing in the right wing association was that by raising the question of whether woke culture has gone too far, they side with the status quo. They side with a culture of domination. I began that way. That's a good one. And therefore, I said that the proposition before the House was absurd. It was, in fact, it's a performative contradiction to raise the question at all. Um, it just proves that woke culture hasn't come to Oxford and that Oxford therefore needs to be canceled. Um, so this is, this is, uh, Wait, hold I've on. completely what? lost why you, I'm talking about this. Did you do this but, with a straight face? Oh yeah. I was railing on them. It's going to be awesome when this comes out. <laughs> I was in full stride. This is beautiful. It's a grievance studies affair goes live at Oxford is what happened. Man. And I've mostly, I haven't kept a tight lid on it, but I've kept mostly a lid on what's happened. I, I just, I can't I believe you, 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 I don't know if you still think that God doesn't exist, but I mean, this is a gift from heaven, James. Like this is, <laughs> that's what I said. <laughs> that's what I said. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. 
Um, I was made for this moment. Like yeah. I get to go do Grievance Studies Affair live at Oxford. This is unreal. Uh, and it's really did, fun. Did, did they not know? Did they not know even when they you... had no idea? Because finally <laughs> I was certain they were going to figure it out and cancel me. And so I finally caved in and emailed them. And I said, do you know you put me on the wrong side of the debate, according to my very well-professed views, but I'm also willing and able to argue the side you gave me. I'm fully, although my point was that I actually know woke stuff. So I could be woke. I could do that. But what you do, what I did was I immediately cut down the house that invited me. I immediately cut down Karl Marx, immediately cut down like everything. But they, they didn't know. They said, oh my gosh, I even have a, I have the email saved and a screenshot of it too. It's like, we had no idea you would want to be on the other side of the debate, but it's full. Will you take the side we gave you? And I was like, yes, I will. And I'm like singing like Santa Claus is coming to you know, it's like, holy crap. Um, and so it was a good time. And the kind of the best part was I went and gave my my speech not to spoil it because it'll be out on the Oxford Union cha uh, channel, maybe in about a week or two. Um, it looks like they're about two weeks behind if you look at when they released them. And it was on the 17th that we did it. Um, so not not to spoil the fun, but um, by the way, I lost the woke side lost. But after I gave my talk. I sat back down and I don't think you can see this on the video, but the two people who are, there were three guests on each side and a student and the two people who are, were my teammates in this debate uh, were thrilled with what I said. They were like, Oh my gosh. And then it turns out the next person who spoke was Constantine Kissin for the side I normally would have been on. Mm -hmm. And he, one of the first things he said was everything that James Lindsay just said is why you should be, you know, opposed to what James Lindsay just said. And, uh, <laughs> which was exactly what I was hoping would happen. Mm. Um, it was supposed to be Charlie Kirk who spoke after me. And I was going to just make sure he said that because he and I are friends. But then um, Charlie ended up embroiled in Arizona politics and couldn't make it as, as one might expect seeing how that mm. played out uh, in the date. But um, they were, they were not only did they agree with me, the guy who spoke on my side after me, whose name is Benjamin also, his name is Benjamin Buttersworth, um, mm. gave wow, effectively is... the same. Uh, he very closely gave the same speech that I gave, but unironically, um, which Constantine and I talked about quite a bit for the rest of the evening hmm. after the debate. But he spoke last. So nobody referenced that fact in the debate. Uh, but it, it, the, the fact of the matter is, is that that's par for the course in in their culture. It is to criticize the people who are in front of you and to cut them down, Yeah, which is why it ends up with the person who ends up eventually, like you said, you end up with a Stalin. It takes in the end by for, for this kind of a program to become stable instead of just this rolling dysfunctional mess like we've seen in Central and South America for decades. It takes a strong man who is willing to just destroy everybody underneath him to make sure that absolutely nobody can rise up. Because the whole thing is criticism. So if I were going to be woke by grifting and, and using my considerable talents, at articulating their thought um, to my advantage rather than to, to criticize it, uh, of course, I would be ripping these people down. I would be saying the exact same things I'm saying now, like that Nicole Hannah-Jones is a manipulative fraud. I, I gave a speech at Iowa State, by the way, a few weeks ago, and I right before I went to the UK, and I said Nicole Hannah-Jones is a manipulative fraud in the speech a couple times. And I also said that Ibram Kendi is not a smart man, apparently four times, because a very angry student who cussed me out afterwards um, told me that that's what I did. 
And so, of course, he said, you said that Ibram, you said some very uncharitable things. You said Ibram Kendi is not a smart man four times. And I was like, he's not. <laughs> but what's the point of, uh, oh. what do you imagine the point of that yeah. student was to say that or to, to Well, to make me look like I'm you. a jerk. Like, yeah, you're you a know, jerk. I didn't you're a bad person. didn't go stand there and play the, the, the game, right? I didn't go up and have a very dignified talk where I won't talk bad about other people, blah, 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 blah. And, hmm. you know, this is this is one of the manipulations that they use is they expect they respect nobody, but expect everybody to respect them. Yeah. And it creates a, an unbalanced playing field. And this is one of the reasons I think they hate me so much is because I refuse. I don't respect them. So I don't act like I respect. I don't pretend to respect them. I don't respect anything they've done. Like, I don't even think. I, there's a book that I read recently about Hegel. It's called Hegel and the Hermetic Tradition by Glenn Alexander McGee. And the first sentence of it, it was like, like I almost just like slapped the table like, yes, when I read it. It was it's the first sentence is Hegel was not a philosopher. That's the first sentence of the book. Hegel was not a philosopher. And, and it's like when you th these people are frauds, they're just frauds. And uh, I don't respect them. And so I think his intention was to get me to play the game, to play the respect game. We see that a lot with my behavior on Twitter. They expect me to be respectful and they, you know, it's like with mm. this, this, the, they bring up an issue and then they're like, well, I just want to know what it's about. And what they're trying to do is get fish to get you to be defensive and try to explain something and then drag you into the mud and roll you rather like uh, Dr. Roller Alligator. Dr. Roller Alligator. Oh, is he? That was my favorite little uh, thing. But, um, and we can we can tell what Dr. Roller Alligator is about, I guess. But uh, in general, I think that that's the strategy is to force people to play the respect game yeah. that they don't play. And your question that kind of led us down this whole rabbit hole was would I whack, you know, other critical theorists in my rise to, you know, to absolute power and in, 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 in wokery? Well, of course to. I would, because that's the, yeah, that could you the, not all they do? No, okay. you have yeah. to. Yeah. You must explain why Foucault was a conservative white man. You must explain why, uh, you know, it's it's more intersectional to cite a black woman or a gay black woman or whatever. The, the job then is to race piss on Marcuse the shoulders of Marx, et cetera, giants, from, from their own ideas. You don't stand, but you piss on the shoulders of giants in this. That's era. a good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, okay. There is that picture, too. <laughs> I, I, I mean, the, the particular audiences don't even necessarily re react when you tell them that they're bad people. They eat that up. They like to know why they're bad people. They like to know how that what exactly they can do to not no longer be bad people. What what you can tell them they can do to be, be you know, the, the, the best good people. And you can even tell them that there's no actual way to finish the job, that you just have to perpetually, in you know, dedicate yourself to learning. And of course, who's what are they going to learn they're going to learn the things that you are placing out for them you know you're they're following the path that you lay out for them because the job is never done that's that's you know i mean that usually that winds up puttering out where the the person doing it is one of the grifter types who's just monetizing the trend for that you know period of time but the the desire to do that the the momentum that gets someone to go down that you know i want to change i want to be the best version of myself i no longer want to commit all of these sins that that that's always kind of the motivation of people going down this path now the the aspect of of you know being critical as part of the um as part of the behavior, that is able to be uh, bootstrapped just by the sheer ability of it to be uh, mimicked and replicated. So to to condition people to think this way just takes the fact that if, if you uh, if you demonstrate to them how this critical 
this critical argumentation works, every single one, uh, every single individual is going to have their little nuanced way that, they, particularly in the intersectional uh, landscape, they are they are being slighted, right? Some some behavior is slighting them. So then, everyone who learns how to do this will have a particular set of of demographic characteristics that allow them to take their moment and levy the criticism against the the whoever it is that's currently dominating the landscape. Because every single person who has come before them will have done something that is incorrect by this sort of this sort of critical nature. So so right now, um, you know, if you go to certain uh, places on TikTok where perhaps it's it's um, you know uh, body uh, body positive communities, right? There's there's always discrimination against. Uh, there's fat phobic people, right? So they they have their own version of what is is occurring in the in the society that is against them. So everyone's going to have their own demographic marker that they can then latch onto. And because this type of thing can be mimicked, these words, some of the lingo, it can be adopted and just reused. It winds up it winds up being something that can be just uh, uh, repeated without having to teach every single person how to do it. Yeah, you don't have to teach you very much, and I think <laughs> that this is this is really the point of Ferrari. So when I say I've got this book mm. coming out in December um, called "The Marxification of Education," uh, where I go into Ferrari, this is I think what he actually did was he figured out how to retool our education system to teach effectively that which he he phrases it as how to see dehumanizing forms in the existing society. And so mm -hmm. those could be racism, they could be sexism, they could be fat phobia, they could be cis heteronormativity, they could be yeah. any, you, you make it up, it's there. Uh, and so you're, you're, you're taught to see dehumanizing forms and to denounce them such that it announces the possibility of something different. And that's how he defines having critical consciousness. Um, notice Didn't that make at no point turn? you have to say what the alternative is. Yeah. But eventually only, he makes a turn. Him or his makes, acolytes, they, they make a turn where they say, well, this, we have to give them something. We have to give the students something positive. Didn't he, it, towards the end of his life, have a kind of turn to, to I mean, he make had something this turn a more near positive? the end of his life toward what he called uh, critical love and, yeah. you know, the pedagogy of hope. But that's primarily um, just a rehashing of kind of the same thing, that the hope actually lies in the, 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 the long distant vision of okay. a world without dehumanizing forms and domesticating modes of, of engagement. Um, so no, so it's, he, it's, he still couldn't uh, come up with a constructive uh, modality was still just releasing energy by tearing things apart. Well, I mean, that's what he says uh, very explicitly in his books is that if you, and this is Marcuse's negative thinking that he describes in the essay on liberation, this is, this is endemic to the critique going back, whether to Hegel or Marx, um, as well. It's, it's endemic to their style of thought. It's endemic to, in fact, the occult religions from which it arose. And it's that if you, in, in Ferrari's expo exposition, is if you offer a positive vision for the world, then you will intrinsically seek to impose that upon others and thus do an injustice. Um, it, what this actually comes from, if we go backwards far enough, is what's called negative theology. Uh, negative theology is the belief that you, just like Marcuse said, or Horkheimer said, I guess, you can't describe an ideal or a good society on the terms of the existing society. And that's the definition for negative thinking and critical theory. Negative Say that theology again. Say is that, you, that sounds like a very that You uh, cannot formative. describe an ideal or good society on the terms of an existing society. That's what Max Horkheimer said is the motivating principle behind his creation of critical theory. 
Max Horkheimer is the person who created critical theory. And that's what Marcuse says when he talks relentlessly about the need for negative thinking. So he's another major critical theorist. And he says that negative thinking will, by virtue of what it actually is, become positive by releasing the ideal society contained within the existing society by breaking apart its uh, dehumanizing forms and structures or whatever. This is where Adorno says that you cannot cast a image of the utopia in the positive. It can only be done negatively. But what this boils down to is a very ancient way of approaching theology, which is called negative theology, which is that any, no matter how um, praiseworthy, no matter how laudatory, no matter how pious your description of God, it falls short. So the only way you can describe God is by describing what God is not. And that's negative theology. So the only way that you can describe the ideal or the perfect good is by describing what it is not or what it is not yet. And that's where you start getting into Hegelian thought. And then if the only way to describe the perfected mm. society is by describing how it falls short of being the perfected society. And, and you can easily theory. make you know, convincing arguments for why that would be a good approach, because you know, in, in medicine, they do that. It's called differential diagnosis, where, where someone comes with a particular problem, you try to rule out what conditions they don't have in order to then uh, only have what's left, which would be what the, you know, the correct diagnosis would be. You don't necessarily try to positively affirm a diagnosis. Sure, to but out. so at best, what that becomes is a diagnostic method. It doesn't give mm -hmm. you a prescription. So w with medicine, you do that. And then the next step is, oh, if you have X, which we've now winnowed down to be. I, I was merely I was merely saying what what could convince people that this is oh, the no, correct of course, perspective of course. to think, right? You know, because no, you have examples of the real world where people would do such a thing. No, um, you're right. You're right. As an intermediary as a, step. Right. But the right. problem is, is like I mentioned before, is at no point are they ever do they ever articulate what you know what's how how do you actually run a society if all you're doing is diagnosing what's wrong with it they never actually propose any positive vision because any positive vision necessarily has its own contradictions mm -hmm. contained within it that have to be picked apart mm -hmm. and so and so what you end up Change. with is something that's purely destructive because it has, just like with differential diagnosis, it's purely destructive of other potential diagnoses uh -huh. um, until you're left with kind of this conclusion. You're like, oh, well, this is all we can say at this point. It's lupus. Um, <laughs> it's never lupus. It's so lupus. in this case, though, what, what, what they have is this purely negative critique driven philosophy and it turns out to be very easy to teach people to do that and that's what furry brings to the table that's what education under critical pedagogy has become and this is why when when gator's explaining that you know it, it, it takes very little to teach people to view the world or the circumstances of their lives in this way mm -hmm. people it doesn't take some like grand brainwashing conspiracy program to get people young people particularly who are encountering the the challenges of of adult life for the first time and realizing how much a lot of things until you just grow up and take responsibility feel like they suck um it's very easy to get millions upon millions of people able to interpret oh there's some dehumanizing form behind why the world is the way that it is and then what i'm going to do as my project is denounce that which turns out to be really easy rather than offering any constructive, positive direction. Yeah. And then that's why they also communicate. They don't give you, you know, when they they want to make a change, they denounce, 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 denounce. And do they come in and say, well, let's work out some suggestions? No, they give you a list of demands. 
which virtually always just include give us more money, give us more mm. positions of authority, and we'll make sure it works. Um, which imagine that you have a negative theology, so you can't describe what God looks like, but then you have some people who are like, but I know mostly what it's like. And if you just put me in charge, I'll run the religion. And people ask me all the time why I keep pointing at Gnosticism, and that's because that's what Gnosticism is. Uh, and Gnosticism virtually inherently becomes totalitarian. Um, and this is kind of my, my, my research project at the moment, since you often want to know what those things are. But this is basically what's gone on, is this, this, this um, negativity, this critique it downloads into everyday people very easily. It, you don't have to have any specific knowledge of anything. Like I, what's something that I don't know anything at all about? Um, ecosystem management. But I bet you I can come up with 20 reasons why it's racist in five minutes. I don't have to know anything about oncology, but I can come up with 20 reasons why it's racist in five minutes. And so it, it, this is extraordinarily easy. And it, it, once you get conversant in the lingo, say you do a master's degree in one of these programs and you get very conversant in that lingo, you can create a critical theory of literally anything. And the only thing for me when I look at that is to think, holy shit, these people are stupid because it takes them so long to come up with the next critical theory. <laughs> like literally, if if I felt like it and we got going, like Gator and I could sit down and by the end, of, by Christmas, we could come up with like 30 new critical theories. Like fully fleshed out, like total, like critical car theory. I did that one. Critical election theory. I did that one. We could do that. The left is structurally pedophilic. That'd be no problem. That one would not go so great for them. Um, you name it critical anything theory we could just make one up and and we could come up with 30 of them by 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 lunchtime really um so um so pause in the conversation i have i have a question but we're we're at two hours um we could take a break we could wrap up now i have a question about alternatives and about i want to hear your guys's idea of the right We've i'm okay talked... to keep going but break would be good yeah you guys yeah, want to stand take a pee. all right let's take a 10 all right we still good on audio? I'm here. I think so. All right. Flip side. It, it seemed when we were talking about the way that the left uh, runs away from the right or distances itself from the right, it, it seems like the left is always creating the right more than the right is creating itself in a, in a certain respect. And so you have all these outcasts. What do all these outcasts do? Do they, do they try to form a collective and then start going down this collectivist route and start purging each other and stuff? Because well, while, I mean, we, while we're describing period. all these negative uh, ways that the left congeals, the right doesn't have anything to congeal it. These are very effective ways of congealing a group. It's just well, I, they get stuck. I don't know. Last last time you we, we spoke, you were sort of uh, describing how... how even though you didn't necessarily self-describe yourself as, as right-wing... Um, based off of the social dynamic, you know, you were being lumped with the right wing. And so therefore, sort of like an identity, am I on the right wing or what, what is what is my political identity? And that 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 happens for most people. So right now, if you think about what the right is, it is an amalgamation of people mostly who do not even necessarily self-identify as the right, who are 
eventually saying, I guess I'm on the right now <laughs> at some point <laughs> because describing where they where they are on some sort of, uh, you know, uh, one dimensional gradient scale is is pointless at some point. Right. And so, um, you know, as far as as far as whether or not the left is creating the right or the right is self-defining, largely the left is creating what the right is just by people saying, OK, I guess I'm on the right now. And there's no particular cohesion. And when there's particular cohesion right now, it's of a very populist bent, right? It's a, it's a person who themselves is not particularly defined, but they are they are saying the correct cultural things that are coalescing them. And Trump is just the perfect example of that in the sense that he doesn't necessarily have a core. He doesn't have a core morality. He doesn't have a core uh, philosophy of government. He he just rails against whatever is is really irking people lately. You know, he will pick whatever he wants, and sometimes that's just you know uh, one-offs where he'll he'll talk to some celebrities who want something and he'll want to gain their favor so that they sing praise on him. So he'll do them a favor, and and then try to hopefully convince his base that that it was the right thing to do or a good thing to do. And oftentimes because it's a like sort of a populist bent, they'll say, hey, look, look at how non particularly crazy right wing he is because he did he did this uh, this you know, signifier like um, when Kanye was still married to uh, Kim. Kim and they went to the White House and got uh, I, I don't know if they were related to this woman at all, but she was a, a someone in, in jail for quite uh, quite a number of decades who he gave her a you know, he um, reduced her sentence to he gave her not a pardon, but the the other one, the other C word. Yeah. So. Um, you know, he he does those things and they don't seem to rock. But now, like everyone who is, uh, you know, gaining steam is much more of a populist than anything else. And and the 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 sexualization of, of children angle is is fairly easy for people to fall uh, on the side of being against. And then sneaking through that could be whatever whatever bundle of philosophy <laughs> that you have tacked on with it and whether whether it winds up being something extreme um where it goes back to the 90s religious conservatism or if it is also much more populist in its bent i don't you know it's going to change day to day but i don't think there's anything cohesive forming that i see and so if there's nothing cohesive is there any possibility that the regime that is infected by this leftist way of thinking can be toppled or uh, or, or restructured the the same way that um, a a very hot pocket of air will dissipate in its surroundings you know it'll actually like you know cool off because it's interacting with with cooler things there's not as long as there's nothing that everyone is coalescing behind a single figure on the left you know a, a dictator type popular character who actually can guide them and direct all of the energy they have, then their energy is going to bounce off of a whole bunch of different things. And so the there won't be a, a motive force in a particular direction. So yes, it can break just through sort of its random interaction with the environment at all times where it's like a Hobbesian, uh, you know, infighting between between the leftist groups where they all, they don't agree on what the next direction to go is, what the next you know angle of attack is. They they do kind of need a central figure. Trump was that for them, and without Trump, you know, knock on wood, if Trump doesn't get a you know next term, they have to pick someone. You know, today it's Elon, but Elon's not going to last as their target forever. He's not. He's not going to be enough to get them to get them going. 
So I, hmm. I, I, it's, it, it is possible. It don't, you don't break them with it, like a move. You just break them sort of through entropy. Yeah, yeah. Entropy. Absolutely. So in, in, is that, um, there's just something interesting about what James was saying about negative thinking and negative theology. They couldn't find a positive leader. They had to find an enemy through Trump. Mm-hmm. The, perhaps the system itself doesn't favor a strong man. It, it won't can, allow for the creation of anything other than a Biden or a Buttigieg or Kamala Harris. Well, yeah, the, I mean, no, nobody particularly likes Biden. I mean, he's he's thirty yeah. percent in the polls. There's really nobody who likes him. He's a vehicle. The, the 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 bet with Biden is that he will not care and just kind of agree to whatever it is that people are saying that that he should do. Yeah, but I, could I, this I, I, could this negative way of thinking, this critical way of thinking, and all the other things that we've described earlier on in our talk, lead to a leader, a a a, a leader, not positive and and like this is a good person, but a, a right. leader who can coalesce and it, focus it, the energy. It, Conceivably, it could, but I don't see it happening. I, I don't right. see anybody in the playing field. I mean, I could be unaware of somebody who come, you know, comes up out of nowhere, but I don't see anybody on the on the ground now who is that type of character. There are some charismatic characters who who pop up now and then, but their time is fleeting. They are not. They they are not the grand strategists. They are really the mimickers who are at, that, at the time that they pop up are really just they're on autopilot. They are mimicking things that they already knew. They are not able to guide because what you actually have to do is you have to get people to abandon their own personal concerns for a short period of time for strategic reasons and follow a strategic plan and then promise them what they were hoping for after the fact. That's what you have to do to get people past that hump because you've already wound them up on their own little little worlds and their own little grievances you have to get them to put them aside for a while and an opposition a central figure to to hate is something that can coalesce but if no leader comes up to be that opposition it doesn't really help i agree with this this analysis i think that um that what the left would have to coalesce around is is some figure who can well, first of all there's the negative aspect where they're coalescing around uh, an, an an enemy trump or whatever and just smashing Trump or killing DeSantis or not literally, obviously, but, you know, ruining him or ruining Elon or whoever else um, kind of directing that mob energy is, is one of the two things that they can do. But that doesn't provide you a leader that provides you with just kind of infinite energy to smash against a rock. Um, what would have to be as somebody who can come in and make a deal that will punish their enemies sufficiently. But the problem is, and this is sort of, and it was a podcast I did recently, it was fairly popular. I said, how Paulo Freire made communism and Marxism stupid is that everybody, and it's really, it's also not just stupid, it's narcissistic. Um, they've taken the angle now of whipping everybody up into their own private concerns or own private issues so much. No, what Gator is just saying that they're going to set this aside for some strong man who promises to punish their enemies. They can't even agree on who their enemies are, uh, not for very long. Um, this, Fascism. The, yeah. So the the issue here, though, is actually more than of 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 cooptation. That their energy is going to be used by somebody else who knows who who has other other plans. And I mean that figure uh, in the public face is obviously very obviously Klaus Schwab. Uh, who's coming out and saying openly things like, oh, yeah, we, you know, when we try to find, we have to take more uh, deliberate moves. This is what he said, I think, last week. You know, we have to take most deliberate moves and we have to, you know, when we looked for an example, I looked to to the great progress of China over the, the last 
several decades. But what China is doing is, you know, and you can see that it's like, okay, these guys, all this central bank crap we talked about earlier, all of these like convenience traps, um, these guys are the ones moving and shaking with that. And this stupid woke thing is actually, in a sense, an accessory that creates enough of a of a mess and an ability for something that looks like the left to support huge banks, which is not it's, a traditional left value. It's a collection um, of cats, and you can have a nice laser pointer, and you can guide them at times where it's useful. Yeah, more and that's or less. What, that's what they are. More or less. Uh, so, so, you know, in a sense, there's a mm-hmm. level where focusing on woke at all is a distraction, but there's also a point where it's not because, you know, you invoked ESG earlier, and ESG is obviously one of the tools that they're using to uh, get public, par- uh, what do they call it, Pl- public-private uh, yeah. partnership compliance. Which is uh, literal fascism. <laughs> which is literally fascism, yes, by by literal definition. But the S in ESG is woke. <laughs> That's, the S stands for social, which is short for achieving social justice, yeah. which is woke. And then, you know, obviously a lot of the environmental stuff is framed out. So that's the E. A lot of the environmental stuff is framed out in terms of what? Not climate change, but climate justice. So not just this attempt to take, say, technological leaps, but also doing gigantic wealth transfers from various regions of the globe to try to equalize um, and redistribute wealth. Uh, so w- w- what what you see then is that that this regime is is capitalizing upon the energy and the mentality of that left wing thought, but also the effect of altruism, being the best person you can be, to be the best at being gooder uh, mentality. They're, they're very effectively capitalizing on that to get support from the entities that would normally have not supported them. I think Gator saying that it's like a laser pointer <laughs> directing a bunch of cats yeah. is, 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 pretty, is a pretty damn good way of seeing it. So how do you not waste your energy as a dissident or do you not even be a dissident? Uh, with respect to what? So being outside yeah. of that, being not woke, not left, worried about the one world order, whatever. So are you, you are you was... an average person or are you actually trying to get in the muck in this question? Well, how do you organize the general malaise and disaffected attitude of all the people who have been burnt, uh, had their kids taken away from them, who, who, uh, want some alternative, like there's a, is there a political will there to even be summoned? If you're attempting to not just recreate, uh, another stupid demon on the other side, you have to try to avoid, um, uh, try to avoid resorting to demagogics to, to corral people. Um, but that's difficult because, Oftentimes, the, there are certain catchphrases or certain slogans that are demagogic that allow people to see you first and then will listen to you more. And that so it, it's it's difficult to not do. But if you want to avoid just creating another stupid uh, version of the, the similar thing on the right, then you need to sort of you, you need to what you're inviting people to is is actually a constructive um, a, a constructive dynamic where where people's opinions not necessarily are valued um, valued automatically, but are not going to be rejected 
frivolously, where, where people are attempting to communicate, you are taking people at their word that what they're communicating is their actual thoughts, and you are exchanging your thoughts back. And that can, that can still involve classic arguments, even heated arguments. But the idea is that you are not going to then turn those moments into an assassination attempt, a, a rhetorical assassination attempt, where you are going to then use a mob to take people out. If you, That's the type of scenario you have to build. But that requires that requires work that can't really be honed in um, algorithmically. That is something that has to be worked on e by each person just through the, the the type of people they keep in their circle. Like, like James and I do talk, you know, on the side, right? We, we talk, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes daily, we have conversations. We do not always agree on everything, but it doesn't become a problem because we are just swapping our, our thoughts. And and he he takes my thoughts at face value. I take his thoughts at face value. You swap them, and then it's that's over. And if that can be scaled, it's hard to scale because outside of James and I, we don't control you. So if you start talking to people and you don't adhere to that sort of honor system where, you know, you listen to people. Well, clearly, you do with by you know, by your shows. But <laughs> other people, we it's can't control that, and we don't have we don't have a system that we've instilled where we can penalize that necessarily until we've constructed sort of our own community. And since we are geographically spaced out, yeah. we have to do that virtually. And so mm -hmm. at the moment, all we can mm -hmm. do is attempt to create something that people would like to emulate, hoping that when they emulate that, it, it carries forth. And that's a difficult, that's a difficult project. And I wouldn't even pretend to claim to have that solved. What but. about <laughs> if one of the weaknesses of what you're saying, uh, the people who are in the left right now, this inability to uh, see legitimate hierarchy, would it not be the case that the counter movement would be able to see and implement a legitimate hierarchy? And the optics on that is would be very easily just said that this is a white nationalist or Christo fascist. Any this sort of organization would be comes in, right? I mean, Jordan oh. Peterson said the least corrupt method. He said nature is filled with hierarchies. Hierarchy develops naturally, and the least corrupt method for creating a hierarchy is competence. Can you do the job? Um, take as much of the man out of the equation as possible, which is why I am always very hesitant to accept that just because somebody can perceive when some kind of a hierarchy has legitimacy in it, it does not mean that they have the capacity to produce a legitimate hierarchy themselves. It's like uh, there's this huge movement on the right right now that is kind of the next large stupid thing that's trying to come up where they're convinced that, that you know they can order society correctly. It'll probably be some kind of a Christian order or Christian nationalism as a brand that they're pushing and that they think that they have some kind of insight into what you know, in particular, God wants society to look like. And as I remark frequently, it's I don't have a problem with the idea of pursuing that which pleases God. I just have a problem with the fact that the person who always tells me what that is happens to be a man. Um, and I don't mean male. I mean a person, a human being. Mm -hmm. It's always some person interpreting what they believe is the full legitimate hierarchy or, or justification for a hierarchy, which is why going increasingly toward and hedging increasingly toward objective standards, where if we're going to have these conversations and these dialogues, some of which will be debates, formal or informal, that we um, 
return to a standard of, you know, letting the arguments be persuasive to the maximum capacity to appreciate but limit the the reach of uh, these are norms that we're talking about reestablishing so this isn't something you can just magically do uh, yeah basically yeah norms is, yeah. is all you can do at the at the end of the day the rhetoric counts but it can't be everything and when somebody's a rhetorical showboat uh in classical debate that actually starts to count against them uh, when you have that kind of a norm rather than somebody coming in and and having a lot of flourish and in a kind of very you know corrupted situation it, it flying but then there's also more objective things there are for example admissions to schooling or schools could be merit based admissions even to jobs could be increasingly merit driven you won't ever have and this is a huge advantage that the kind of negative thinking left has you will not ever have a perfectly legitimate hierarchy there will always be nepotism merit is a very difficult concept yeah and so there's always in some sense loose threads that they can pull on to rip apart the fabric but there can also be norms of learning to recognize and understand that that's um that's no the fact of corruption being present in hierarchy is not necessarily um, condemnation of the entire hierarchy uh, or the process by which it ideally aspires to, to achieve things. And I, what I worry about when I listen to people now hmm. is I hear a lot of people on the right adopting the core kind of negative thinking principles of the critical theory set of assumptions. There is no neutrality. Well, that's a that's a fake statement. It's one of those things that you know. Nicholas Shackles, a friend, a, a sort of a friend of mine, um, he wrote a paper in 2005 called uh, uh, "The Vacuity of Postmodern Methodology," and he talks about these things called trolls, truisms, and all of this. And that's what Dan Dennett later called a deepity. And I don't know if Dan just kind of stole that or from Nicholas or whatever. But the idea is that you say something that is. Um, true in a banal sense, but that it's false in a very profound sense, if it were to be treated as true. There is no neutrality. Well, no, everybody brings their biases to the table, but you can aspire to set those aside and to counterbalance them. There are lots of mechanisms that we can use, and there are ways to behave where you're being more objective, more fair-minded than deliberately bringing in your political agenda to the table. Um, that all education involves, say, the instilling of norms or social and emotional learning. This is a, a thing that they use to justify bringing social emotional learning programs into schools. They say, well, it's always happening. It's always part of education anyway. Well, there are attempts to remain as neutral as possible and as minimal as possible with that, reserving moral and value and character judgments to the largest extent possible to the parents and not taking a proactive stance and deciding that the only way to be virtuous is to do it through an equity lens or whatever. This is this is a, a situation where I'm seeing the right taking up these kind of dumb shit statements that are only true in a kind of banal way if you wash out all of the texture, all of the meaning to it, like, oh, there is no objectivity. Well, yeah, well, no shit, but we can do pretty damn good. Um, I mean, all we got to do, for example, is consider the p-value. <laughs> no, 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 oh, no, no. We're not we going to do a p-value argument. I was oh, trying to trigger you, Gator. We're not, oh, no, 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 no. That was for you. Well, that was a joke. We're going to get into no, statistics. No, there are, but there are, there are rigorous methodologies. 
Yeah. There are rigorous methodologies. And to say that nobody's perfectly objective doesn't actually undermine the fact that there are rigorous there are more and less rigorous methodologies. It is not a rigorous methodology for me to consult my bad mood to decide, you know, what the status of an elementary particle is. This, this is not a rigorous methodology. Well, I feel like protons should behave this way. That's not a thing. But there are more rigorous methodologies, and it doesn't matter whether people are perfectly objective or not. And so I'm seeing these tenants being picked up by the right, and then they are are pushing this idea with it that there needs to be kind of their hierarchy it's, validation scheme. If I were to say that there's one concept that there, it's it's always about it's it's determining that everything is just power. And that that would be basically disc rediscovering right. that, right? That there is no, right. there's no objectivity. Will point eventually down to everything is just power, and so while while obviously the truth of that statement is what we've all been dealing with for quite a while, that isn't that isn't what you would like to end up with. So if you were ever going to replace, there is nothing but power. You have to work at it, and if you stop working at it, then you will just cede the ground to there is nothing but power. And and there there are ways uh, of making things more resilient to people who have the perspective that there is nothing but power, and it's not it's not perfect. Every every everything can be broken, but mm -hmm. the idea is you if you're running off of the idea that that there's nothing but power, then you will not be building something that's better. You will just be trying to find a way to subvert the previous people who ran off of the idea that not, there is nothing but power. I mean, there is clearly a truth to that, right? The people who have particular power are exercising it and winning at whatever the particular item is. But ultimately, we can do a lot of things as, as social creatures that don't involve strictly ideas of power. We can, we, you know, cooperation does wind up building great things that power does not. Hmm. Well, it, it just, it's the reframing in my own mind. I just say, well, okay, if everything is power, what is power for? That it's a, Everything is power is a neutral statement, but what is legitimate power? What is good power as opposed to bad power? Good well, power it, would be uh, a family this, unit well, where this, there's the mother and father you know, make decisions for the children, but they do it, it based it, on love, right? So you can, you can atomize it like that. No, this, this version of power is really more systemic. So it's the idea that, that the person or the person or small collective that is able to guide particular uh, societal structures towards their own ends. That's what power would be. It's, it's, they're able to extend themselves well past their actual autonomy to use others autonomy for their own ends. That would be what power is now to the, if you were to atomize it, to to individuals and and the smallest unit of collectives of individuals a family a family might be a legitimate place where there is a power dynamic where yes the parents are able to hypothetically you know mold their children you know to to serve i guess what would be their own purposes but in that in that sense you you it's hard to describe what that even means specifically because as social creatures we have we have sort of evolutionary instincts that that remove us from actually having aims you know so, uh, as a wide social stance meaning if i'm going to have children i'm not solely thinking about how i can uproot the entire system and train my children to uproot the whole system right mm. that, that's usually not what people are thinking about with their own children necessarily they might be thinking about it with other people's children but but not their own their own it's it's a much more complicated dynamic there's a much more uh entrenched individual familial story going on so it's it i wouldn't i wouldn't atomize it that way but hmm. 
Well, so you would have to, so what would be the not just power um, kind of ideology or set of ideas that would guide the resistance or the dissident energy that is out there, the, the people who are disaffected by the liberal order, by the teachers and the education and all this stuff that we're talking about, like what set of ideas are there to get people to coalesce in a way that would do good outside? I mean, I, I'm still thinking that, that and, and maybe this is the classical liberal mindset that I have, that I'm still thinking that it's that what you what you want as the the set of guiding principles, you really need it to be very parsimonious. You need to be kind of minimal and humble. And I don't think a lot of people understand liberalism as a philosophy correctly. And I, I mean, I certainly see that in the post-liberal reactionaries. I also see that in the post-liberal woke, um, that, that they, they fail to understand that the set of underlying assumptions upon which the classically liberal order the american experiment might be a better way to phrase that was produced is, is is strictly that none of us has the mind of god and therefore none of us has a legitimate claim on authority over another unless we can demonstrate for some reason that in that circumstance we have that standing and the idea would obviously not be that you demonstrate it by saying, here's my PhD, here's my credential, here's my badge, here's my whatever, but rather that you're able to do the thing, you're able to do the job. Um, I think that that is fundamentally the, the central liberal axiom, which is that hmm. we don't possess the mind of God, therefore we don't. And if you understand what, what's classically meant in theism by God, Part of that is that that God is the basis of all legitimate authority, which means that we don't have access to the basis of legitimate authority. So all of our authority has to be borrowed. Borrowed from what? Borrowed from demonstrating that we're producing results. That's the meritocracy direction. Borrowed from the people by democratic elections to install a representative who governs, you know, by and for the people, as it was put. Uh, that's lent political authority, that's limited in its scope, limited in its duration, that is subject to the voters again after a period of time. Um, so what we're doing is loaning out political authority. And the reason is because there is no claim that any individual can make to have authority over any other. The exception that you just mentioned, the family, is that I do think there is legitimate claim that the, the, the parents have authority over their children because they're minors. Uh, which is a different circumstance. And of course, adolescence gets complicated and every family knows how that works. And people just kind of put up their hands and write comedy routines about it. But uh, ultimately, if we're going to mount a resistance to illegitimate applications of power from people who believe that they have the right to in, to assert authority and power over others and that everything, that which is what they mean by everything being power, is that what they mean by that when they say that is you are asserting power illegitimately and I would assert it more legitimately than you would, so I should have it. And the answer to that boils down to what is at the heart of the American experiment, which I believe is not any other thing. It's not, you know, capitalism. It's not democracy. It's not, it's not any of these things. It is that none of us has a claim of authority that's 
a priori legitimate over any other person. And so any claim on authority has to be demonstrated on some kind of merit. And when mm -hmm. we go back to, and we, if we push more and more toward that, and merit is a very um, broad topic. Uh, it, there are a lot of things like me having amassed a very large audience on Twitter demonstrates some kind of merit. And that's a complicated thing because you can become famous on Twitter for something very stupid. Um, you can become very famous and influential for being somebody whose job is literally to pretend. We call them actors. And sometimes they become very famous. And think about how good Tom Cruise was at flying F-18s. And so we should listen to him on serious matters. Whoops, that was his character. And so there's a lot of reasons that we could get confused about these things. But the, the ultimate truth is that, that if we want to com combat illegitimate power, then what we have to do is delegitimize the ideas of claims to illegitimate power with what amounts to saying, prove it. Oh, you're going to be good at running a school? Prove it. Well, your school's seriously fucking up. You're out. And then the other side of that is going to be including those teeth. Well, you know, you installed a gigantic regime of abusing kids in your school. We're going to fire you or put you in jail. Uh, or we're going to sue you for damages or whatever else. Um, these, I think this is what we have to cleave back toward. I think that what they called, you know, 200 40 years ago, the cause of liberty. I think that that same flame can be lit again, but we have to remember what it was about. It's not, you know, total licentious freedom. It's not liberation from reality. It's not liberation from the people we don't necessarily like. It's, it's in fact that we don't have any claim on authority that we can't demonstrate. Um, which is the scientific ideal, which is the capitalistic ideal, which is the democratic ideal. Um, and I think that that's the direction it has to go. And I, this is why I think that the post-liberal left and post-liberal right are both wrong. And they're, in fact, both wrong for the same reason. Yeah, and the unfortunate aspect is there, there just are no answers that you can hand out that are... Hmm that people can take away and go, ha, I now have the answer because it's going it as as James, you know, can condensed it, it is about establishing norms. And those norms are our interpersonal relationships and interpersonal behaviors, you know, where where, you know, an actual to... reputation uh, that's anchored in reality an actual product, not just I said a good thing or I came off the right and, way. And hopefully having ho hopefully having. Uh, establish relationships that are more resilient to external pressure than a lot of a lot of things were for a while. Because if you if you look at some of the actual weaknesses in interpersonal relationships, it can be just simple rumors that wind up, you know, fracturing those where people will turn against you. Where maybe perhaps the one of the problems was we allowed our friendships to be fairly superficial, and not you know to the point where you know, a, a claim like that person is right wing is able to disrupt your friend circle where they they are imagining that their best approach to life is to secure what their lot is by, you know, turning away from you, as opposed to making sure that that network itself, that that network is survivable against the onslaught because the onslaught is what's bad. The network that you had was good. You know, that was that that those norms that allowed that to solidify were what was good. And we had, you know, going back to something I said earlier, where a lot of people are trained to only identify based off of the signals, that signaling is is 
is corrosive because at any point in time, a new signal can come up. And if you're one of those people who goes, I don't understand why I'm doing this. What do you want? Why do you want this? And everyone else gets it. And now you're the odd man out. That's a, that's a very fragile system because nobody in particular in that circle is, is thinking about what's happening. Yeah. And that's, so it's the best I can try to condense it at the moment. It seems like what you guys have both said is not institutionalizable maybe, or at this point is not, what is the vehicle of conveying norms outside of an institution? It's pure relationship and communication. Emulation so is slow, one of the ways to do it. Emulation. It's a really slow process though. You know, each people, if something doesn't work, meaning that, that what you're attempting to bootstrap uh, as a, as a behavior pattern gets eaten alive. There is an idea that possibly it requires a critical mass before it could be stabilized and, and uh, be able to be resistant to larger pressures. But presumably if you could create such a structure where it to out outsiders, it looks better on the inside and it is legitimately quote safer, meaning that it's more resilient to pressures. And, and, you know, if, if you are a person who's a, a constantly one, one of the phrases that I've had for quite a long time is that most people suffer from imposter syndrome and most people are playing a, a, a fake it till you make it strategy. If you, if you are one of those people and you find yourself in the correct structure where you do make a mistake and your structure is helping you either recover from your mistake or, or uh, helping you learn why the mistake was made and, and actually improving what you do as opposed to immediately turning against you or things like that, that sort of thing can eventually become stable if it can, you know, withstand the pressure. It's just not an easy thing to do. We all have our own lives. We all get caught up in, in minutia, the way that we're all integrated into, into these uh, inter, inter-network relationships some of them are parasocial to a a deleterious degree and some of them are parasocial in an actually not too bad way you know where it actually allows people who are not geographically related to you really? know uh, to establish something that is is meaningful to some degree um you know if if those things can be modeled and emulated then then it can sort of bootstrap itself into existence, but it's still very hard because at any point in time, you know, the worry that you can be next on the on the axe is 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 around the corner. But if if it's it's just not it's not simple. So everyone has to sort of work at it to try to you know both be better than they were the day before and also have some forgiveness for other people who possibly have slighted them. The problem is that some of the examples that we have are they're 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 towers. If you think of just what the latest Sam Harris fiasco as an example you know sam harris sam harris in in mo the minds of most people is not a person he's an idea he's a concept and and now there is a person behind sam harris but if you if you were to follow what he considered to be relationships there is a lot of backstabbing and, and infighting that it seemed to occur after he established those relationships. So those those are not perfect models to emulate but if those are those are the towers that you have to stare at as you look outside your window there's no, the, you don't see anything else. And so that, hmm. those are, I mean, I might be rambling at that point and losing a particular direction, but that's, you know, it's, it's hard to do, but that is sort of one of the only ways that you can do it. And that doesn't mean being hypocritical about, uh, about your values, where if someone is, is doing things that are pretty unconscionable that you ignore it and just accept them, but you have to give people a, a, way of not begging for forgiveness, but actually just sort of, you know, hey, it's not the end of the world that you've made this mistake. You have you know, uh, norms like that.
Hmm. Hmm. That sounds like a hopeful place to kind of wrap it up. <laughs> I mean, I think we actually are in a hopeful place. I think that what's happening at the moment, frankly, this isn't going to sound very hopeful, but it's true. Um, it is hopeful. Um, I think that there is a very large amount of fraud that has been floating up the chain of existence um, to where now the fraud doesn't have very many more places to float higher, which means uh, that that many fraudulent things shall fade. As a matter of fact, they're going to implode because they don't have any place to kick the fraud any higher and it, it's going to hit them. Um, that's going to be tumultuous. Uh, but I also think that it will be uh, cleansing in a very important way. Uh, a lot of this woke stuff, for example, really only thrives in a very kind of corrupted environment. And it sounds very unhopeful to say that these very corrupted environments, oh, like I hear people all the time, well, what are we going to do without the universities? I don't know. We'll figure it out. A like, lot. <laughs> oh, yeah, a lot better, right? Well, do you think a new university structure will come into place? Uh I don't even know if we want it to like the circumstances are a bit different before the university. There were other things when the circumstances were also different then. Um, and these things that have become very corrupt in some sense are sort of revealing their obsolescence in a certain way as well. And they're kind of hastening the ability to move away from them and to, to come up with more adaptable and resilient approaches to solving similar problems and so the kind of like bureaucratic corruption in which this stuff thrives, the administrative corruption in which this stuff thrives, uh, is, is, I think, causing itself to expire. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be. It could conceivably go on and on and on and on and on. There's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of moving parts. No, I don't think so. I think that things are falling apart very quickly. In fact, um, I don't I, think I've said for a wrong. while, I've said for a while that we probably, and, and this is just because I'm consistent with my timeline, uh, we have about two more years before I think we have with peak craziness, at which point the things will fracture, whatever, whatever the, the consequences of the fracturing are, some of them will be economic, obviously, we can see those, mm. those things starting to fissure now, but, but at the, at the point where turns into all zero sum games there is nothing else that can be extracted from you know there's nothing you can't get any more water from the stone um the there will be uh, all the zero sum games will turn in inward on each other and there will be a, a lot of uh, auto cannibalism going on with some of those some of those groups that currently the threats that we all see and i think at, two, at after two years is probably when we're going to see the apex of that and and that'll be when things don't get better immediately, but the the worst that they will get will be same, and then it'll be easing into. Something what level are you talking about? You're talking about like the WEF, or you're talking about like uh, the mainstream media? I the, those those things are always or? just going to float on top. I'm I'm referring to the day the day in day out uh, sort of um, rent seekers that we see the the cultural rent seekers, the ones who are are. Uh, you know, in in positions of controlling where the narrative goes, the ones that are controlling um, how people are communicating with each other, what what topics they are focused on. I think there's going to be a period of time where it's going to be obvious that most of them are all rent seekers and all self serving um, uh, self serving ideologues, and and the 
the things that people have been doing, the, the things they've been trained to do that have worked for them in the short term are going to stop working, at which point they won't have something to turn to that will work except turning against each other mm. because there will still be some pieces of the pie they can steal from each other. And at that point, it'll seem the most crazy, but it's actually the point where things are going to start to get better. Wow. Well, uh, if, if we're all around in two years, <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back into a postmortem. I, I hope my timing's right, because if not, it's going to be later. <laughs> I'm kind of getting tired of it. So, so um, final, final question. Um, kind of a big, stupid question, but what's, what's the... Your, your greatest luxury of 2022, just something that gave you just tremendous amounts of, of pleasure, uh, just frivolous, luxurious pleasure for this past year. I mean, does getting to go to the Oxford Union and debate on the side of the woke count? Beats Dr. Phil, man. I mean, that was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty fun. I mean, I can't wait. I don't know if that counts. I don't know if that's what you're looking for. I mean, I got a cold plunge. Is that like we've talked about the cold plunge in the past? Oh, right? okay. I thought that was an enema, but, but I remember you have a little tiny bathtub. Cold, like, yeah, my, my pleasure is cited or is located in sitting my dumbass in cold water for 10 or 15 minutes a day. Like, it's, it's really cold. You're still doing um, it? You haven't died yet? Because people were worried about today. you getting uh, hypothermia. No, I wasn't getting hypothermia, but I think I was overdoing it and causing some health problems. So I backed off on how much time I was spending with it. Um, I did it today. Uh, it wasn't particularly cold today, though. It wasn't as cold. As I've, I've, I had all that travel, so I didn't do it a bunch of days. And it got cold outside, so I raised the temperature a little bit. So um, I don't know. That is sort of the luxurious pleasure, though, is soaking in cold water. I have to say, I, I might even recommend that, that you're... Your suspension from Twitter, you just seem not as irritated by idiocy during this time. There's this weird phenomenon. <laughs> What's that? It's yeah. all the grass you touched. Yeah, no, it, it is all the grass I touched. No, it's um, it's really interesting. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up, if I may. Uh, so for about three weeks, so the, I got kicked off of Twitter at the beginning, beginning of August. I think it was the 4th or the 5th or something like this, right at the start of August. And um, for about three weeks, you know, there was a lot going on. People were actually, people were like, hey, what are you doing with all your free time? And I'd answer like 800 texts a day. Was what I'm doing with all my free time is I'm answering your text messages instead of doing it, you know, publicly. Um, but after about, I, I predicted actually on the same day, on the day I got kicked off Twitter, I predicted it would be about three weeks. And then people would more or less have moved on with their lives. And that more or less happened. Uh, and so I read many eulogies about myself in that time, and I uh, I did other things, but I still had like a lot of text messages, and there's still social media. There are other ones, it turns out. People forgot that, but they are there. Um, and so somehow in kind of just sitting away, I would go and look. I couldn't see much on Twitter I mean, I could see anything I wanted to, but I didn't follow anybody and I couldn't follow anybody. So my feed was ads. It was just ads. And which is kind of funny. It's like you're permanently, permanently suspended. Here are all these ads. Um, and my ticker on my DMs, the number, like that little red number that tells you how many DMs you have just kept going up. 
Are you a monetizable user according to that? Are you a monetizable daily active user according to the? the well, it turns there? out that it was people leaving group chats that I was in would send me a DM to tell me that someone left, but I didn't know what that was, so I got back in. I was like, "How can I be getting DMs? I'm so curious as to what those are." But it was, you know, Doctor Rollergator left the chat or whatever was what all of them were, and. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't you, it was other oh. people, but it was different group chats I was in, education group chat, this, that, the other thing. People leave the chat and it would give me a DM notification. But anyways, um, I would look at the trends and like I would click on, you know, somebody's trending, Trump is trending, Jack Posobiec is trending, somebody's trending. I click on it and I would like look at the way that people are reacting on Twitter and I was like, holy shit, this place is stupid. It's like really one of the worst ways to interact with information on earth. And something psychologically changed. And I think I'm imperturbable now. Like I see it and it's like seeing it from an, like, like I'm somebody else seeing it almost hmm. like I've got this sense of separation. Hmm. And I also literally, I got kicked off. I don't care if I get kicked off again. I don't care if the platform collapses. I don't have any investment whatsoever. I just want back on for one week before it collapses. Well, let I mean, me, have I want week. you back on. You, you have you <laughs> have a whole lineup. You have like this little mini series, don't you? Yeah, you have it yeah. all planned out. Yeah, I have a story arc. I want to get the story arc out. Come on. I was going to just go troll Weird Al, but I said, okay, Weird Al to Weird Al when I got back on. And then Weird Al blocked me. So I was <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> things have changed around here, apparently. <laughs> how about that so i don't know there, there there's a certain um it's it's something different about how i perceive it's almost what gator was saying a minute ago the the parasociality of twitter it is fun i think it's a fun place it's also a toxic place it's a terrible way to interact with information um but a great place to gather information as long as you don't mind being wrong what did i say earlier about twitter twitter is like um it's like the cassandra complex but in reverse it's like bizarro cassandra if you don't know the myth cassandra was this character that was blessed with foresight but cursed with never being believed so cassandra knew the future would say the future and the curse was that nobody would believe her which is a relatable phenomenon but twitter's like the opposite it's like cassandra technically was telling the future and was always right and nobody believed her. But with Twitter, it's like it reacts immediately. It's always wrong. And everybody believes it. It's like reverse Cassandra. Um, and so I don't know. I have this different perspective. That's pretty luxurious. Not going to lie. Uh, but I, my indulgence is still the cold plunge. Mm -hmm. Good tequila. I don't know. I found some good tequilas drinking. What about you, Gator? Uh, well, you know, if I can if I can make sure to solidify my arc in history, you know, I caused by by not re by refusing to delete my tweet, I caused the Babylon Bee to take a stand, which caused Jordan Peterson to take a stand, which induced Elon Musk to buy Twitter, which which puts us where we are now. I was the first mover in that chain, so you know, you're welcome, everyone. A very small. You were domino. the pebble. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That first I, little I, domino I that knocks over the wall. I I did it. So you're all welcome. I'm very proud of my accomplishments this year. That's why Dr. Rollergator should be freed yes. at once. Hopefully soon. Uh, supposedly, supposedly starting tomorrow, he's going to, you know, release all the regular suspended <laughs> people. But uh, I'm not suspended. I'm in, you know, I'm in this limbo of 
Now, I might change my calculus because, you know, if he's unsuspending people, that means if my account would have been suspended, I would also be free. Mm. The, the, biggest, the biggest question just comes down to, am I, still, am I still admitting to guilt and having this mark against me? Because, you know, Elon's going to basically, I know he might actually attempt to be fair about it, but he's also going to turn on automated systems. And he's also going to have this, a lot of this be programmatically. So if, am I building a strike against me on uh, starting off the gate, building a strike against me, I, I would just like some, some communication that says, no, you're not <laughs> right. Because this General is such amnesty. a stupid tweet, right? You know, it's yeah. just a, such a stupid you know tweet. It's I'll follow really whatever stupid. rules he puts, but like. <laughs> it's really a stupid thing that you got whacked for. <laughs> By the way, did you know, I don't know if you know this, the first time you ever replied to me on Twitter with your all caps <laughs> that I just muted you immediately. Like I, I just saw it too. This is good. This is good. And uh, then, then I found out you're actually like, all these people were like, roller gator, roller gator. I'm like, holy crap, he's actually hilarious. Unmute. Okay. <laughs> and now we talk almost every day. Aww. Friendship. It was in, instantaneously, I was like, what the hell is this? Mute. What was that stupid website called? Friendly Friends. You guys became friendly friends. Yeah, friendly Friends, yes. And we both put on, on rainbow outfits and horse heads and danced in the, the poppy fields. Pooping rainbows. I'm going to wrap up the recording. Thank you both right. for joining me. This was absolutely fascinating and thoroughly luxurious. Well, thank All you, right. Benjamin. Have a great time.